So in recording this, and not that it will stop me, or that I guess I care very much, or I would have run my career such as it is differently, but do you think that talking to you about this and putting this out is going to put me on some of the same blacklists that you're on? I do. I do not. Uh, I. I don't think. I, I think that the, that I, that what I deal with now more than anything is the stigma, and I believe that the reputation that was laid back in the '90s by all of them, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tommy McGuire, Kevin Connolly, Scott Bloom, and others, including guys like Jay Ferguson and um, and more. These guys, you know put a reputation out there, they destroy my reputation and, and that follows me around. But I don't think that there's any activity out there. There's any, and, and no, not at all. I think that, um, uh, you know, I think, I, I don't think, I, I don't even think if you took a stance, you know, took a side, you're like, uh, you know, as Leo bad Toby, I don't think it would have any effect at all on, on, on you or, or really anyone near you. Well, so, I think, I mean, hating, that, you know, hating on famous people is, is too easy. Uh, no, I, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I have a side. I am on the side of this film. Like I just, that's, yeah, exactly. The, the film is innocent. The film exists and it is. there are, if there was only, if there were only half or one tenth as many important frames in it, it would still be an important part of the historical record. And let, let me, yeah. Yeah. Let, let me just say this. Let me just say, this, okay. Cause this is what I deal with. This is like what that question is the epitome of my problem. Yeah, right? I bet. Like this is yeah, it is. You know, like people are. You know, I, I've lived with this, uh, with this, uh, you know, with this, with, with people telling me over and over again. I've lived with people telling me over and over again, Dale, you've got to, you got to move on. You got to make another film. I can't even tell you how many of the hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of times over the last twenty years that I've heard the words or read the words. You got to make another film. Make another film. It's just one film. Like people do not understand that every film is a trip to, to the to the to the summit of Everest. They just don't. And it doesn't matter how small. It does not matter how small. Um, you know, films are are gigantic under, undertakings and uh, feature films in particular. Um, and moving on would be great. And making other films would be great, right? It would really be wonderful. But I literally deal with. You know, there was this guy. I'll give you an example. Guy in Jersey. He said, "Man, let's make a short, a small movie, not a short film. It's just a small movie." I was like, "Yeah, I want to make a, like, something small, hundred grand, hundred grand, hundred fifty grand, perfect." I was like, "This is a great little budget." And I started writing and coming up with ideas of how I could take one hundred fifty thousand dollars and put the right cast cast together and come up with something really special. And I started putting it all together. And then this guy comes. He was like, "Hey, man, I'm going to go in a different direction." And I was like, "Why? Why?" And he was like, "He was decent enough to be honest with me, dude." He was like, "He was like, well, because I don't know if working with you was going to hurt me." And you ask a question like, is talking to you a possibility, does that possibly make me a target for the blacklist that you now live with? And this is what I, this is, this is what, this is what living with a blacklist is. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I get in the room, I get in the room, man, and, and, and the, the air is spoiled, you know? And so here I sit without my, without, without, with, with, a, with a shelf full of scripts, scripts unrealized, with a heart full of, of, of poems, you know, with a head full of movies. I can't get any of it out. Uh, and 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 part of why I can't get it out is because even if Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't actively try to destroy my name or my reputation, 
which he does passively, by the way, when he gets the chance and it's, he can do it, he will. Uh, I, I know this, I've, I've actually got evidence. But, uh, you know, even if he, if he wasn't like that, he didn't do that until Leonardo DiCaprio said publicly, emphatically, Don's Plum's my film, you know, film I'm in, I love it, go see it. Uh, and, and, and all is forgotten. And I think even if he did that, there would still be, you know, that, that, that 20% of crazies out there who would just stick to this idea or this belief that we're bad people and that we did bad things. Uh, but otherwise, you know, this stigma, unless, unless Leo lifts the stigma, the stigma goes nowhere. There's only one possibility for me, I believe. I truly believe that there's only one real possibility for me. The, 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 and, and, I, and I'm working toward it. And that is that I get the public. Like, not, I don't need all the public and I don't need Leo's public. I just need enough uh, human beings who believed in Don's Plum enough to say, I want to see what this filmmaker can do next. Um, and, and, that's, and, that's, and, and that's what I, that's my, the only hope for me ever. There's never going to be a finan- an independent financier who's going to step behind me with the kind of money that a film requires and feel comfortable doing it, knowing that I have the biggest star in the world ready to slice me open in public at first, at, at, you know, at any attempt. Or to stop the film, right? This is the big thing, right? They'd be afraid that they'd be able to stop the film. Do I think Leonardo DiCaprio would interfere with my next film? I don't. Do I think Leonardo DiCaprio would would be mad at you or or try to interfere or put you on some blacklist because you took the time to interview or interview me and talk about the film and give me a platform or give the voice uh, the, the the film a platform? I absolutely do not. But that is not going to stop people from thinking that he will, and that is what's going to stop people from working with you. Well, you know, that um, that's what makes me so I'm so happy I asked that, because first of all, blacklists to one degree or another affect many of the films that we discuss on this podcast and the dynamic of being inside one and of recognizing that dynamic, uh, that dynamic is I think it's just an important thing and it's hard to recognize when it's not happening to you. But let me just say, and uh, just take me by my actions, not by my words. If this podcast ultimately comes out, which of course it is, or it will, then please feel like that uh, that's me putting my sort of Dalton Trumbo arm around you and saying, okay, while there's still a blacklist around you, I, I got my arm around you. Uh, creatively, I don't know. I don't know. We we don't know each other that well. But just, I just it's. I was raised on blacklists are bad, you know. So <laughs> blacklists are bad. Yeah, yeah. Hey man, I'll I'll tell you. I'll tell you. And you know, you're recording, so you can have this. It's a tool, but if not, just just a tidbit. Like it's so crazy how deeply this permeates. And, you know, when I came out with Freedom's Plum, and I, I and and this and, and then, you know, you you're you're a positive guy with this positive vibe. And I was doing a positive thing, you know, by getting out there and being like, hey, man, I'm going to confront this thing that drags around mm-hmm. behind me and making noise, changing everything for me. I'm just going to turn around. I'm going to face it. I'm going to talk about it. And I wrote that open letter. And, and obviously, I, you know, it, it made me, you know, it was a, a very uh, a positive step forward. But uh, shit, I just forgot what I was about to say. Damn it. Never mind. That's okay. It slipped away like a fucking fish in the night. It, you know what? The thing about it. Those fish just kind of stay in the same area. So my experience yeah. is you just, you let them come to you. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to have distracted that away, but anyway, that I, that was a great question. It's an important question. That I don't think it get, get frankly uh, that I've been asked enough about it. Like, well, I think most people you know. won't. Oh, be, this is what I was going to tell you. This, this is what I, I do recall. I was going to tell you now. So I, I came out with Three Dons Plum, and that kind of blew up a little bit. And um, and actually, before it blew up, I wrote the open letter to Leonardo DiCaprio in September 2014. Shortly after that, I reached out to a, a writer called Nancy Jo Sales. Nancy Jo Sales coined the phrase, or made at least popular the phrase, Pussy Posse, in a New York Magazine article in the 90s talking about Leo and his crew, right? In the late 90s, and this was after our fallout, and she mentions Don's Plum in it, and this is how I'm aware of her in that article. And so I reached out to her. Uh, because I was like looking, you know, I had no publicist and I wrote this letter and I was like, can somebody, you know, do a shout out for me and, and get somebody to read this letter. And so I reached out to her, uh, tracked her down, sent her an email. She's, uh, maybe I told you the story. Did I already tell you the story? No. About Nancy Joe Sales? No. Okay. So, so then I wrote her, uh, uh, you know, I, I found her email, I wrote her, said, Hey, Nancy Joe Sales, you wrote this article. I wrote this open, open letter on the, the writer producer, Don Plum. And I've got, you know, this is, this is my plug. And she wrote back. She was she she was at the time and may still be a writer of Vanity Fair, at that so she had you know moved on from New York Magazine onto onto Vanity Fair, which I had I did not know or I may have known at that time actually I may have tracked her down there, but anyway I reached out to her she she responded and she said Dale no one is going to touch this no one's going to touch this, no one's going to publish articles certainly Vanity Fair won't but won't but most won't, and she gave me a, a like a whole like explanation like she in in writing it was amazing. She broke down, like in, 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 or she surmised at least how uh, how people are going to, um, uh, or why people are going to reject my story, and and why and why Vanity Fair will direct my story, uh, reject my story. And it was just like a fascinating letter. And so then, uh, you know, whatever three two years three years later, I get a I get a, I get an email from a writer from Vanity Fair, and they're like, hey. I want to I want to write about Freedom of Fun. And I was like, okay, well, let's do it. So I do the interviews, a couple of interviews, maybe uh, three, four hours worth of interviews. Uh, we do the interviews. Months, months, months pass. Uh, I'm getting all these great feed. I'm getting all this great feedback from the writer. You know, Graydon, uh, whatever his name was, he was the he was the media giant at the time, running Vanity Fair. Loves the article, loves the interview. Everything's amazing. I've not read anything. It's all exciting. Um, I'm getting calls like it's 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 going to move to the magazine and just all this great stuff. And then, uh, you know, time goes by and they're like, oh, we're, we're doing a relaunch of our website. And so we're going to use this as the flagship sort of or the, the relaunch article uh, for the for the new website. And I'm like, oh, that's exciting. Let's do that. Or you go ahead and do that or whatever. And finally, the article comes out and I read it and the article is fucked. It's just nothing like the interview that I thought I had. And it certainly didn't tell the story that I believed was not only the truth, but the story that needed to be told and the story I tried to convey to the writer. And he wrote me and he asked me after the article came out, he wrote me and he said, you know, hey man, I know the article came out, what do you think? Because he was nervous of how I felt about it. And I responded to him by saying that he embarrassed me. I said, this is an embarrassment. This is nothing like we, we, we talked about. And I, and I sent that email off and he sent it back to me, or sorry, he responded to that email and I had not, and I did not look at it. I did not open it for two years. I did not open this email because I just mm. was yeah. so angry at the article itself that I just didn't bother. Well, then I get approached by the New York uh, Post, right, to do the to do the documentary. So I get approached by the New York Post, 
And I tell the guy when he approaches me, I'm like, you're going to get interfered with. You're going to get blocked. Forget about this, all this other stuff. This is sort of how the thing starts with the New York Post guy. And then I'm like, look, this, I just went through the shit with Vanity Fair. So just at that point, for whatever reason, I decided, you know, my curiosity kicked in and I went to go read what the response to the Fair writer, uh, to, you know, to my email. And so two years later, I open it up and what does he, he, he details the interference of Leonardo DiCaprio in the article. Like he details, like literally details how Leo, uh, well, first of all, how Graydon wanted Leo at the Oscar party. And that's why they weren't going to do anything on, 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 at his Oscar party. So that's why they weren't going to do anything on Freedom's phone. But then he detailed how Leo's publicist literally interfered with the, the article and the sum and substance of the article. Isn't that nuts? We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Tom's <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And my name is Brian Connolly, and I'm also one of the hosts. And we're here to talk about Don's Plum, and you already heard a chunk of the interview that I conducted with Dale Wheatley, who's a writer and producer on this film. So you kind of got a little bit of the backstory of what this is. Brian, do you have any response to the, uh, the this whole thing that we might be on a blacklist because of this podcast? I don't think we will, but you know what? It's good to stand up for people who get their art taken away. I think that's a good person to defend in this world. Uh, I, do, I do. I believe that censorship is a bad thing. And so I think that if you've made something, people should see it, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not. Just something out in the world. He's got to put it out there. Um, but this is a movie I had never heard of. It definitely worked in them not having this movie come out because I never heard of it. I heard of the people who were in this movie. But until you wanted to do this episode, I had never heard of this movie at all. Um, and I think maybe part of it was because it's listed on IMDb as being made in like 2001 or something like that. And so I'd assumed it was some weird movie made between these people's big movies. I didn't realize it was like early on in one of their first movies when it was actually made. It just that was the year that it actually came out in Europe or whatever, I think. But uh, no, this is definitely a fascinating experience, this movie. Whether it works for you or not, I feel it's worth watching because it's just an interesting time capsule and just an interesting moment in the in these people's lives and these characters lives and these actors lives and it's definitely worth the uh worth seeking it out well i want to put a little teaser here at the end of my conversation with dale wheatley we're going to come back and we're going to get your take on this film uh great so uh so let's so, so you should stick around for for that but before that we're going to go to this interview actually we're going to go to a clip and then we're going to go to this talk with Dale Wheatley, and then we're going to come back and try and make sense of all of it, because this is a really, I mean, it's a complicated story involving people that many of us think we know, and 
that is a great jumping off point to what I think is a, is a pretty good talk. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. I'll hold her everywhere. And there's more of them every fucking day. We breed them like flies. You guys are such assholes. What gives you the right to say that about anybody? Bro, like fucking a little tank walking by, bro. God, you guys are such What is the matter? You know, what right do you have to say that about anybody? Okay, shut up. Jesus Christ. How would you feel if I said that about you? You know, you guys aren't so fucking good. How about I take my shoe and shove it in your mouth, okay? Oh, I'm sure you just want to fuck me. That's what it's all about. You oh. fuck anything uh, that stands yeah. still. <laughs> you fucking squatty piece of shit. Oh. oh. I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it. I know. I'm not going to sink to your level. Take this little fucking rubber bands out of your hair. I'm not going to sink to your level. I'm not going to sink to your level. I'm not going to sink to your level. I'm not going to sink she was fat. It was funny. I say, wow, I find you attractive. Why do I find you attractive? Because you're an asshole. And that must mean that I'm an asshole as well. But... Stop looking at me like that. I'll fucking throw a bottle at your face, you goddamn yeah, sure whore. You look like you're fucking possessed, bro. Relax. I know. What am I supposed nice. to do, bro? Put your arm around her or something. But she's not my fucking girlfriend. Put my arm around her, bro. So why don't you sit with us? I can't. No, no, sit down. Just sit Come sit for a minute. Guys, this is my friend, Constance. Hey, Hi, How are you? Hey, Constance. Is that a joke? I just met this guy, by the way. Hey, I just met this guy. What's up, dude? What's up? How you doing, bro? There's no point, really. You're not even a fan of the Grateful Dead, are you? Why are you saying? Because you have, obviously, you have nowhere else to go. Is that it? Because you're doing nothing but fucking making everybody, like, well, miserable. She's, she's one of those chicks that lives in, like, a Volkswagen van and goes, oh, you know normal. what? Shut up. What do you know about that anyway? <laughs> oh, are you into that kind of shit, too? <laughs> Whatever. You guys are so insensitive. Look at she's crying here at the table. It's okay, so look. uncool. Really deep, deep down inside, they don't care about you. And they don't care about themselves. Well, you just want to alienate yourself? You're such a schmuck. Myself? I think you're the one that's alienated. No, you're correct. the one with the problem. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Constance. Hi, Constance. I'm Derek. This is a whore. And uh, <laughs> oh, these are the rest of my bastard. friends. She's a bastard. This is past ridiculous. Oh Have you guys God. had sex with a hooker? I haven't had sex with a hooker, but I got head from a hooker. Have you really? I did, bro. Since we're coming bro. clean, I mean, it's obvious I'm not going to get laid tonight anyway, so I'll tell the story. I was... Fucking wish. <laughs> no, me and my friend Pete Picatagio. We were, uh, I was in 11th grade and we fucking drove in. We got, I got hit from Luca, I'm not gonna lie. 20 bucks. Don't lie. Right on. They make you wear a condom, dude. I know, they don't like How telling you. How is head with a condom? You, know, you, guys, you guys are so disgusting. You guys think this is funny? You think it's funny talking about degrading other people? You think it's funny to degrade other people? She took the 20 bucks. Go! I can't look at your face you're anymore. Causing, I'm gonna throw something at you. I swear to scene, God. Bro, leave. That's something bro, about why don't you guys fucking die. leave her alone, bro? You guys were fucking pricks. Why don't you just right. let her fucking be? 
I just can't look at her anymore. I mean, look well, then don't vibe. fucking look at her. Stop, bro. You're She's looking her... at me right now. What am I supposed to do? Throw a fucking bottle in her face? You're acting like you're fucking 14. You do this to make yourself feel better because you're scared of me. I'm the one that fucking intimidates you. Yeah, he does yeah. appear to be shivering. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should go. I mean, I'm not trying to add to you. I agree. Okay, I don't think they're gonna stop. Okay. I don't think they're gonna stop. You guys are such fucking assholes. Right, go, okay, go, go away! Don't fuck them up. Get the fuck out. Uh, hey, try to oh hey, go fucking nowhere. I, I was bitch. a little bit of an asshole. Nonsense, Derek. Nonsense. Doesn't matter. You're cynical. Well, I have to say that. <laughs> you should go after I really didn't like that. I fucking believe this shit. I chuckled briefly. Oh, I know. Yeah. So cool, you know. That was out of hands. Where did you pick that girl? You gotta be all. You should go after her. Oh, here comes the big dramatic exit. It's good to make your acquaintance. And yours, and yours. After years of, of your film holding a, a, a very special place in my brain. So I'm, I'm really glad you made time to talk about it. I'm, I'm happy to. And uh, yeah, you know, we also, of course, uh, share our mutual friend, Jerry Meadows, and um, uh, he speaks so highly of you. And so, uh, yeah, I'm very, uh, very excited to, to chat with you. And I'm sure you know how, how, how vocal I am about Don's film also. So. Yeah. Well, I, I do, I have to say, because of Jerry and because of other people who are in the film, I watched the film with this sense of in an alternate universe, I might have been in this film. And so <clears throat> I think that that's amazing. May gives me it's weird. It's like I feel like it gives me a this license that nobody else gave me, but I gave it makes me give myself license to judge this film maybe m more harshly on a, on moral grounds than I would if I didn't feel like I was on some level implicating myself. Because I could have been one of the people in this movie. I could see myself participating in everything that's here. And so I don't judge it in a sense of like, oh, those guys are assholes. Or, uh, uh, uh. It's more like, yeah. boy, I knew I, that's too, that's too, it's kind of too close to home. I hope that I was never one of those guys, but I definitely sat at table. Like, I just feel those dynamics in the film. Yeah. Yeah. I think that few people were actually those guys, you know, those guys were, you know, they sort of, you know, more or less all the characters kind of carried the burden of, of what we, what we were thinking was, or what we were feeling was what we see in people probably periodically. Like I think most people have a similar experience and that's been at least my experience with, 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 you know, feedback from, from fans of the film is that most people have this similar experience where they, they see themselves and there's kind of they see they see themselves in their film there's kind of like two um two real reactions to that there's there's people like you who who embrace the film and then there are those who almost lash out of it uh, lash out at it uh and, and and i mean you know it's i feel a little weird saying this because it can sound kind of um 
I don't know, self-important or something like that. But uh, I, I think it's because the film, because the film, the reality that they see, you know, the sort of mirrored image that they see of themselves uh, through it is just an uncomfortable experience. It makes them a little bit um, afraid of themselves, and so they kind of lash out. It's a, it's a little bit weird, but it's it's been my experience so far. Yeah. So you have told the story of this film many times. I recommend people check out the long interview you gave on the Projection Booth podcast. I felt like that was, even though I don't agree with their take on the film, I really, that was one of those ones where I was listening to that podcast and just thinking, boy, I wish I was in the room to be, to bring another point of view here. But your interview in that, you, you go into great depth talking about the story. And I want to talk around the story. We can talk about some of the details of the story, but is there some place for listeners of this, if they want to get, aside from the documentary that I know you're in the middle of creating, if they want to get the full story of what we're going to be alluding to when we talk about Don's Plum, is there any particular place you would recommend people check out? You know, I really don't. There's really nobody telling the whole story properly. Uh, I, you know, my interview in the New York Post has some 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 goodies that that I think put some clarity down on on the whole thing. And um, I did another one for uh, uh, hugging the cactus on YouTube, which uh, it's a it's a pretty lengthy interview, but I I, uh, I felt like it uh, the interview the sort of you know what came from it explained in some reasonable detail what we went through and 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 why it's important that people kind of pay attention to this because beyond the film itself whether you love or you hate it there you know there was a lot that that i think is really scary for artists that happened with don's plum that i think people should pay attention to and make sure that it, it doesn't happen again i mean we're probably the only film in the history of the united states to be blocked by its cast who had no ownership in the film whatsoever so uh it's a it's a very unique and and kind of ugly situation, you know, as far as, uh, as far as, you know, you know, the whole story, I think, you know, it's, it's been super disadvantageous for me personally and for others involved in the film and the film itself, that there is no complete story. And I'm going to do the best to tell my side of that in a book that I'm writing right now, which I'm excited about. And I have no idea when, when, when it'll be done, you know, I'm, I'm editing the first draft right now. I'm probably a third of the way through that process, <clears throat> that process. It's been, it's been quite a journey and a, a really interesting ride back in time. Um, but I think it's going to be the most thorough sort of look at, at what happened with Don's Plum in, in every respect, not just the, the, the horror story, but also um, the love affair. You know, we, this movie was a love affair from, from top to bottom until, and, 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 and you know, it, it behaves like one to this day, uh, on, you know, albeit a, a scorned love affair. Well, yeah, I think that's, part of where the <clears throat> where the horror comes from like the the horror film doesn't work if we don't sympathize if there wasn't a moment when things were beautiful that then get destroyed by the the monster that that's enters. true yeah well then for the people who are not familiar with what we're talking about can you give the sort of i'm sure you have a brief take on okay this is what this is the story of what happened to don's plum sure i'll, I'll do the best that i can um a group of friends got together to make a film in Hollywood in 1995 during a time when there was really a, a renaissance of independent film. You know, so many incredible directors were launched during the, the 90s um, and, you know, the, the late 80s even. Um, and there was a fever in Hollywood and we all had it. 
so we all got together to make a film and that film was Don's Plum. And Don's Plum was an experimental film. And everyone of course knew it was experimental because we literally had no screenplay. We worked improvisationally from top to bottom and in a manner that was rather unique to people's approach to improvisation at the time. Uh, there, was very, there were very few filmmakers out there making entirely improvisational-based films. And um, so uh, we, you know, we, we engaged in this experiment with you know, open hearts and open minds and with our full creative force, uh, all of us. And, uh, and you know, born from all that was Don's Plum. And um, Don's Plum is a real visceral piece of, 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 of work from the 90s. It makes no apologies for the way you know, we were in this era and in this geographic, you know, socioeconomic uh, place. Um, and I think that scared some people and in particular, you know, Tobey Maguire. And so Tobey Maguire uh, set out on a very, uh, a very um, deliberate um, campaign to destroy the film. It didn't last long. And, and this is where, you know, the story gets really difficult to tell, but it didn't last long. The campaign only lasted really about a day or at least it came to, head, to a head in one day. And on that day, Leonardo DiCaprio really declared war against Don's Plum and the people who made it. And so, um, uh, in about you know, uh, you know, in and around around 2014, I you know I was I was uh, being courted by or with or to I was actually being courted to a producer in Hollywood, a very big producer, uh, and a project that you know my sort of my my you know my. You know, my, 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 my baby, my, my, you know, this project that I'd, I'd been working on for many years, developing, he, this the producer was interested in making it. And when he found out who I was and my involvement with Don's Plum, he backed away instantly and, and, and said specifically that he couldn't afford to get on the wrong side of Leonardo DiCaprio. And so it was in 2014 that I realized that this, 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 this horrible thing that happened to this beautiful film that I love is still following me around and, and, and still sort of suppressing me and, uh, you know, and stopping me from being able to, to to, to be the artist I am. And so I spoke out and I wrote an open letter to Leonardo DiCaprio, which was published on freedomsplum.com. And, um, and, you know, Leo dug in, he had the movie removed. I put it up for people to see and he had it removed. And uh, here we are today in 2021 with this dispute, you know, sort of as, as, as fresh and uh, as, as, as sore as it was in 1995. Is that I went on so long? That no, was no, un, no, no, no. But for someone who has that was admirable. For someone who has uh, followed this story and was not sure how I could tell it all, and who's lived my own versions of this story and knows how hard it is to condense something that is so big and has so many details. Bravo, job well done. And as you said, okay, uh, you're writing a book about it. I recommend the Projection yeah. Booth podcast. I'll put links to. Uh, other podcasts where you that you'd like me to share where you go into more depth about this yeah and i mean i don't think the new york post well the new york post uh makes some terribly false claims uh such as uh you know there was any kind of greed involved on behalf of the filmmakers and just uh, just utter nonsense Don's plum was you know if Don's plum had been released at the time you know we, we would have made a, a, a small amount of money relatively speaking so uh, there was just all these nonsensical things in the New York uh, Post piece, and and Leo's publicist got their fingers in it. This I'm sure of. But um, uh, but all in all, that interview is solid as well. So if your if your listeners wanted to check that out, I think that if they wanted to fall down the rabbit hole, that wouldn't be a bad one. There's some entertainment. There's some entertainment value in that one too. It's kind of funny at times. Well, <clears throat> like the viewer of a horror film, I hope you're okay with. Like, although personally, I have a great deal of. Uh 
sympathy for your situation. That's not how I want to approach it. I want to approach this because we're this yeah, is for, this is for the this is for the viewers and for the listeners, and we want to encourage. I, yeah, I feel like this is an important film, a film that people should see, whether it's because of the actors who are in it. There's something about seeing incredibly important and talented people early in their careers that is something that is important cinematically. I think what it documents is particularly in light of Weinstein and all all the Me Too stuff, looking at that dynamic and the energy around that and the way the dynamics that it creates, I feel like also really, really important viewing. And then, of course, the story, the the horror story of what can happen in Hollywood to artists based upon, and this is the mystery, you know, whether, like, I don't want to, there's a certain amount of conjecture of, like, why did this happen? And we might be able to get into that. I hope that that's something you get in, you're getting into in your book. But purely, again, from an audience standpoint, like, I'll, I'll compare this to the Zapruder film. I feel like it's, I, get, I feel like it's important in the same ways. Like, if you're interested in history, it's an important document. If you're interested in history, it's important. A part of the important document is why it's hard to see that document and what, you know, what the story around that document. And there are things that it reveals that it didn't intend to reveal. And those things are also really, really important. So <clears throat> getting into that, knowing that I that we're framing this around uh, Don's Plum as a horror film that people don't often think of as a horror film. Right. What are the the horror, the horrific aspects, whether it's in the story that because I watched the film again last night and there are things like I feel like this is the least sympathetic character that Leonardo DiCaprio has ever played. He's beautiful. He's also I mean, his talent, his movie star shines through incredibly. But I have never had and, I, and this makes me like him as an actor. Actually, I feel like this about all the actors in it and the idea that any actor who was in this movie would feel like they were poorly represented is so strange to me because it is this movie that gave me sympathy for several of these actors, particularly Tobey Maguire, long beyond a time when other people had given up on him because I, I, I have such a strong feeling for his performance in this film. So anyway, with all of that as, as preamble, would you like to unpack a little bit about where the horror in this film lives on any of those levels? I'd love to. The, 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 the first thing I, did, I just wanted to, to, uh, to, to, to touch on a little bit is that, um, you know, if there was any apprehension, if there was any fear from every, anyone with regards to uh, the, the film and what it represented, it wasn't because they were revealing anything about themselves. Um, in fact, we were very careful about how we prepared this film and how we prepared these actors to make this film to, uh, to fulfill characters. So uh, these, these characters, these, these, are, these are characters, and of course every actor brings themselves to roles and we have all that sort of usual uh, goings on, but um, in no way, shape or form is Derek Leonardo DiCaprio or Ian uh, Tobey Maguire. And that, that's sort of like one of the sort of, uh, I think, 
uh, myths of the film that I, I'd love to, I'd love one day to be dispelled, which is that, you know, these guys were playing themselves. It's just, they couldn't be further from the truth. And that's what I'm excited about the book. It's, it's sort of exploring for everyone. So just to touch on that. Actually, wait, wait a second, be, before you go, because yeah. that touches on something I needed to ask. So part of sure. what's wrapped up in this is the mythology of Leonardo DiCaprio and the Pussy Posse. So if you, and you might want to talk about that to the extent that you can. I was not a part of this, but I've, it's in reading about it, this is one of the things. And when you read that these guys were part of a entourage, for lack of a better word, that was that called themselves the Pussy Posse, and then you see this film, it's natural that people are going to make the connection and say, well, those guys are acting like the kind of guys who would call themselves the Pussy Posse. So how do you talk? Yeah, how do you speak to that? I, I, I can never fault anyone for making any assumption about it. So a couple of things, right? It was journalists that labeled the group, uh, the Pussy Posse. I, I hung out with these guys extensively for, you know, two and a half years uh, at every level from their homes to bars, uh, hanging out with chicks, hanging out with whatever. There was never any talk of foolishness of this Pussy Posse. And, and the other thing that, you know, is pretty funny and, and, and a crazy label is that you have uh, a group of uh, friends and they're in their, uh, you know, they're 19 to 24 years old. They're rich. They're good looking. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're chasing, they're chasing girls, man. Like, yeah, everybody, everybody was chasing girls, you know? And, um, and that, you know, they didn't stop because they didn't have to, you know, the rest of the world, you know, got a, got a belly, a, a full-time job, you know, a kid or two, whatever else. But these guys, they just kept partying and kept chasing skirts, right? So, like, there was no pussy posse. There was just young boys being boys, and they just happened to be rich and famous and doing it. Um, so that's that's sort of, um, I know there was never a time that, there, there was never, we never named ourselves. We just hung out. We were just friends. Yes, there was a core group of us uh, that, you know, sort of moved as a one thing for a while there. And it, it certainly continued after our DNI left, but, uh, but that was just, you know, we were just a, a clique as they say, nothing more, you know, and, 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 and it had no theme or purpose. It was just, you know, we just, except to have a good time. So, um, yeah, no, 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 there was no sort of pussy, po pussy posse, you know, reality that we were living. That was just the, uh, the sensationalism. I mean, you got, you got Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Who was then, you know, arguably the hottest guy in film, you know, physically. I mean, you know, as far as beauty goes and, and, uh, and, and of course the biggest star in the world at the same time. So, you know, it's just, you know, selling, selling tabloids, man. I think Nancy Jo Sales uh, did that. And uh, I think Nancy Jo Sales might be the person who coined that. She's a journalist and, and filmmaker. She actually worked with Sofia Coppola, but she coined the Pussy Posse, I believe, with New York Magazine back in the late 90s, maybe the early 2000s. Got it. Well, this is good. This is where we can clear some of the mental brush as we work our way through this thicket. Yeah. Can I get to the horror question? Yes. Can yes, I, please do. To, I'm sorry to step on you. Yeah, because it's such a cool and interesting question. So for me, whether, where the horror exists in the film, like in the, the creative, uh, it was... The horror of growing up, man, the horror of being faced with like all of this shit that we carry around uh, from our fathers and our uncles and our teachers and all those who have influenced us from the previous generation and who themselves carried their luggage over to us. And so we're sitting there with all of this stuff like, you know, in the, in, this was a really interesting time for me personally as a young man 
where I was being faced with all these things like homosexuality and not, not I'm, I'm straight, but my feelings toward it, you know, I grew up with a bigot a father, you know, my, my father was an old school boomer who, you know, you know, gay is wrong. And, you know, he's a, uh, he's, you know, white is right. And all, you know, all these crazy things going on. My dad wasn't a white nationalist, but he was absorbed in a culture that was in and of itself innately racist. And so there were all these different things going on in, in the world that we were kind of coming to face. And it was kind of our generation, or at least I felt, I don't know if it was our generation, I wouldn't want to single us out, but I felt like our generation was, you know, really, um, you know, we, we, we sort of, we started to face these things. We started talking about them. That's why Brad is a bisexual and why he's defending his bisexuality as a, as a, as a confident choice in life. That was nothing that we would hear about in the 1980s. You know, as I was growing up in the 80s, there's no possible way that that would have been socially acceptable at a table amongst a bunch of, you know, heterosexuals. And the interesting thing is like the horror of what women have to go through in their, in, in, in the way that they're pursued in, uh, by, by men and how they're treated by men on a daily basis is, is evident at that table. And what we wanted to show to counter that a little bit was that the women were the ones who were really ultimately in control of everything going on in this movie. And that happens throughout. Never once do the guys get what they want because they want it. Anything that was ever, uh, you know, acquiesced uh, to a, uh, to a, to a from, from one of the female characters, one of the male characters was done with their willpower, not, not the other way around. And that was all by design. That was all by intention because what we wanted to do was we wanted to expose the horrors of growing up, you know, like I said, with these, all these, these, these horrible, you know, chains of our fathers and all these people who had all this, you know, had all the shitty, shitty, you know, all these shitty things to, to say and do and feel about society. And we were changing. We wanted, we wanted diversity. We wanted um, an LGBT community. Um, we wanted, you know, these 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 things that we're seeing, you know, coming to fruition now, in in uh, you know, and being ushered in by the millennials and so on. So anyway, so yeah, for me, the horror was was in 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 coming face to face with these things that we were, you know, these these misogynistic moments, these bigoted moments, these moments of of uh, you know where we lacked empathy and. Um, and where we were refused opportunities to, 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 to help rather than hinder, you know, these kinds of things, you know, and where we also compromised ourselves, you know, like Connolly's character, um, Jeremy, you know, and, and, and his whole thing with the, with, the, with, the, with the female producer. And again, you know, to show the power of the shift, we wanted to show that, that, that we believe women are gaining power in the world, you know, and this was a big deal. This is why we brought Bethany Ashton on to write with us because we wanted to show that like women were becoming more powerful. We, you know, powerful. Myself and RD, who were the primary writers of the movie, we didn't take, like we, we ourselves didn't like take, make any assumptions about writing for women, you know? We were actually nervous about it. You know, we have a conversation that's like, well, well documented in the book about it, where it's just like, man, I, you know, we have, we have four women, how are we supposed to properly represent them in this situation? And so we brought Bethany Ashton on and she was the one who sort of, sort of helped us understand how these characters might react under these circumstances. And that helped us, you know, build a deeper, more meaningful, more relevant story between, or struggle between, you know, the two genders in a, in a you know, in, in really what is a testosterone sort of, you know, hormonally infused time of life, right? In our early, uh, our late teens to early twenties. 
So that's some of the horror I saw in Don's Clone that I loved. You know, the horror of being exploited at your work so that you could get an extra shift. You know, the horror of having to, you know, create and 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 and, and find opportunities that, uh, you know, to to just simply survive. You know, it's just all these little nuances within the film that we did in a way that we felt was like, you know, more more entertaining than you know, sort of preachy like our big thing was and leo's big thing was you know he didn't want to be i don't want to be no preachy film i don't want to be, you know and that was a big thing for me too it was like we really wanted to deep dive, uh, do a deep dive into subtext and and I, I think we did that so i guess depending upon who you are watching this the horror of it is going to hit you differently so <clears throat> so if i'm 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 aware of the horror the of for the female characters in the film, but I I don't have the same visceral reaction to it that I have to Leo Dica Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, bullying, like his that like and it's it's brilliant because he captures something that I know really well. I think anyone who is ever like a like the target of that behavior knows it really well, and he re like he just really twisted the knife on that where was the decision to make that central to your movie star character well we didn't we didn't want uh leo to have a a romantic uh like you know the, the whole thing was was about uncovering you know the discomfort of life and uh and and the discomfort in these characters what was what what was you know what was it that, you know they were being faced with uh, that was going to you know somehow change them and shape them in their future, and 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 we were supposed to take this uh, footage by the way and we were supposed to cut it juxtaposed in uh, juxtaposed to um, to documentary footage actually that was the original vision for the film was that we were going to be you know we would shoot these scenes and then we would cut documentary footage uh, uh, you know as I said juxtaposed to you know their sort of commentary on life and how they're going through life. With with Derek, uh, we just didn't. We, we we started out, you know, as a as a. Um, we just didn't want a character that we didn't want Derek. We wanted Derek to be the opposite of what you would expect, you know, visually, which would be this charismatic. I'm going to pick up girls. It's going to be cool. We kind of wanted to, uh, to to sort of you know toss that on its head uh, because I think we wanted to not be typical with Derek, and so uh, it, because he was being played by Leo, frankly. Oh, and may and I so just that, say that, the scene where yeah. uh, DiCaprio is calling people on his friend's phone and his friend is just yeah. going at, just yapping at him. Brilliant. One of yeah. many, that's one of the things that we, I, you could, that could get lost in this discussion. And I, I want to keep it in here. There are several things yeah. in this movie that just cinematically as a standalone scene, beautiful, absolutely yeah. beautiful. And that's one of them. It was a magical, it was a magical movie. You know, one of the things that, you know, a lot of people don't understand is that we shot this movie, we shot 75% of this movie in three days. Um, and, and, and how these different little, little, little moments sort of came together were incredible. That one, you know, uh, very interesting. We, we had worked so hard and so fast that when uh, we got to Leo's last night, he was only there for two of the three nights. And you see how long and how much Leo is in the film. So it just goes to show you the magic that was going down on that set. We got all of Leonardo DiCaprio's and everyone around him we got all of their performance in, in, in two nights. So as Leo's, Leo, Leo needs to leave, uh, he's got to get on a plane and go to shoot Marvin's Room in New York. 
And he's literally leaving from our set to the airport. And um, and so we 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 cut. Uh, I forget what we were shooting. It was something in the diner. We cut, and then we're like, okay, that's it. That was it. I think that was actually the Jenny Lewis scene. That's what it was. We had just shot he and Jenny Lewis's scene in the bar, and we cut that, and that was the wrap, and uh, and that was a Leonardo DiCaprio wrap. So I called the wrap, or one of us called the wrap, and Leo was like, no, 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 we have to shoot Jerry Swindoll. That's the guy, the guy playing Leon in the, in, the, in that scene. And we had, we had planned to bring Jerry in because he's such a funny character. And so we were like, just by default, this kid was just a funny kid. Like he, he, you spend three minutes with him and your eyes are just leaking, you're keeled over, it's crazy. So we were like, okay, yeah, man. Uh, so, so, so we cut and, we're, and then Leah, we, we cut, we didn't have time. We, we were wrapped, we had to flip the diner to, to, you know, to get back to serving customers because we were, we were wrapping by morning and flipping before the morning crew came in, you know, everyone their eggs in the morning. So we had to hustle our butts out of there and um, and so Leo turns to us and he's like, no, dude, we have to do it. We have to do it. And so we looked at our DP, uh, Stephen Adcock, and we were like, can we, can we just rig something up quick? And so we quickly scrambled for that hallway shot. We set up a low shot. Threw, I threw one key up. I don't think we had anything other than that key light up on there. And then, um, and then we shot that scene in one take. And it took, it took, you know, it took about 45 minutes to an hour to, to, to set up the shot because we were still breaking down the cameras from, from the Jenny Lewis stuff. But it was Leo, Leo literally pushed for that scene and it was a last second to like get it in there. And it's such a brilliant scene. Like the film wouldn't, the film, the film wouldn't, the film wouldn't be the same without that scene. Like I don't think the film would be the same without that scene. Uh, it's well, so I'm looking up this actor, Jerry Swindoll. This was his last film. Yeah. Before this, he's in Quick and the Dead, Telling Lies in America and The Beach. And then is is there a story there? Because he's great in this. I thought he was just like a real weirdo, but that's an acting performance. The, the story is the story there is that yes, they met at Quick in, on Quick in the Dead, right? And then he put him in the beach. But the story there was that so, yeah, I don't think Swindoll liked acting. I don't think he was very good at it. And that's the funny thing. Like he 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 could do that what he did for us there, brilliantly. You know, it was just so like oh, like you know we had to we had to write him back in. It was the so he did that scene with with, with Leo that morning. That was the, the what would be Sunday morning, technically. Mm-hmm. We wrap Leo, we go to bed. Robert, before we go to bed, RD and I sit down. I, 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 I'm like, we got to bring Jerry back. We're like, yeah, we got to bring Jerry back, Jerry Swindoll. So that's when we wrote him and Nikki Cox coming in later with, with when when Leo's in the back with Jenny and he's like, fucking beasted, dude, you know. <laughs> um, and so we we wrote Jerry in there, and so Jerry came back the next day, which he wasn't originally scheduled for, and that's the fun of shooting improv. We literally threw our entire crew, our first AD, and you, you, you've been in film, you know this. We yeah. threw that wrench in. We're like, hey, we got a new scene, everybody. And they're like, fuck you. Yeah, new scene. Let's do it. And um, and so anyway, that that just to just to sort of some lore on that scene because it's one of my favorites, and I wish I could uh, show it to everyone uncut because it, it literally is. It's a perfect take. It's the most perfect take I've ever seen. It's just comedic brilliance from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And when we cut it, having to cut it in between anything else was heartbreaking. Our first cut of the film, that this the movie just opened with that scene. And then, uh, of course, we had to write a proper opening. Uh, we had written a proper opening and shot it, but... That's another story that, that, that our, our B unit just failed on, on, on every level in the first shoot. So we had to go and 
let's base those shots. And that's when we, we found Toledo Diamond. Okay, so back to the horror. The horror. The horror yeah. of of Don's Plum. The other place that I feel like it really lives is with the Jenny Lewis character. I find her her character and her performance to be so uh, contradictory, interesting. Like, it's almost like she's doing the subtler version of Leo's character. Here, now you got me calling him Leo. I made a rule for myself. <clears throat> I don't know this person. He is DiCaprio. He is Leonardo DiCaprio to me. You can call him Leo. Uh, but it, <laughs> so there's something about her character because it's not played purely for sympathy. And again, you're saying this is all improvised. Is that her creation? Is that the the, the team's creation? Talk about the genesis of that character. So with every character... Uh, we created uh, what we called character sheets. And so we built their personalities uh, in the form of, you know, sort of personality modules on a page. And then we would take those and translate those onto index cards. And from those, we would build reactions to various situations and conversations. And then we would introduce those through a rehearsal process. So what we did, it was, it, was, it was an extremely dynamic process and it's well-documented in the book and it's so interesting in my opinion. I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I really think people will dig it. Um, this book is going to be the ultimate companion to Don's Palm. If, you, if, you, if you're a fan of the movie, you end up becoming a fan of this movie and the book is just going to be something to, to, to devour because I really get into, some, into the weeds about how we develop these characters and how we developed um, the storyline and the movements of the, of the film. But it was very dynamic. So, you know, once we finally got everybody cast and we knew all of our females and we knew all of, our, we of course had our friends uh, cast in the, in the male roles, um, we just began uh, adding and subtracting ideas to the characters based on how they, the, act, uh, the actors uh, responded to the things that we were giving them. And the actors were throwing things in and peppering things in. So, you know, it was very much a collaboration. Um, Jenny was a massive contributor to her character, obviously, but her character, Sarah, was created by, ultimately was created by, uh, you know, our DNI based on an original character created by, uh, by, by David Stutman. But, you know, as far as the process goes of creating, you know, the, the subtleties and, you know, the subtexts of, of Sarah, I'll tell you, uh, for all the characters, and, and I think Jenny is just a genius. I do. I, I think that Jenny was one of the was it was, could, could have been a generational talent in, in acting. I, I just instead she decided to be a generational talent in music. I mean, you, you got to make your choices, I guess. She well, you know, I saw her years after all this shit went down with Don's Plum at the ArcLight, and I bumped into her, and it was lovely to see her and to give her a big hug and and she said, "I got I got I got out of that shit, bro," referring to Don's Plum like the controversy, the trouble, you know, the, the like career, any, you know, I, I, I she's never said anything like this, but I, I, I just suspect that, that that performance meant a lot to her. And I think that, that uh, it definitely changed the direction of her life. Music was always going to be in her life. She was a big, you know, she was big into music at the time that we shot down. when we knew her because we were very close. I was a very close friend of Blake Sennett, who was then Blake Soper and who founded Rattle Kylie. But before we digress too far, uh, or before I digress too far, Jenny Lewis is just, I believe she could have been a generational talent. She offered so much to Sarah, it's just, I can't even possibly begin to break down 
where and what and how and what her method of thinking was. She was an incredibly responsive person to direction or suggestion. You know, before she went into her, her, her confessional in the bathroom, she and I had a very long conversation about what this film really did to me. And, and, I, and I felt like she, more than any other actor that I worked with, I didn't work with every single one that went into the, into the um, confessionals, but I worked with her specifically. And, and uh, she was the one for me who really captured everything that went on that night in her own personal struggle and story in that mirror. Uh, all the way to taking full control. And you know, a lot of people don't know this about Don's Plum and, and because Don's Plum's a size of life life, there's no real spoiler here. You know, Don's Plum is about how we're not, how we're gonna be okay. How, how despite the fact that we are these things, that we are shedding these things from our lives and, you know, being born and reborn again as different versions of ourselves as we learn what works and what doesn't work for who it is that we wanna be. Um, that through that struggle in the end, that everything's gonna be all right. And that we're gonna be able to ultimately inherit the earth and be able to do what our fathers did before us and their fathers before them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really the whole, what Don's Plum is all about. But Don's Plum, is, Don's Plum is about how generations, despite their struggles, will find the strength and gain the wisdom to move through uh, life uh, with purpose and, uh, um, you know, and, and, and with, and with good intent, you know, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's, that's what it means in the end. It makes sense. But I guess to me, that's where it shifts to horror because to the bystander, what you see is that all happy endings are fake and that Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire are going to grow up that these bullies no offense because again we're making we're doing this mental i'm not saying that this these people are the same but because of the mystique around it and the around movie stars these guys go on to conquer the world and and then and basically raise the village that they came from and by raise i'm talking about in the sense of bombing it and not in the sense of uh raising it up with them and Again, not to you're in the personal of this. I think anyone who has experienced a friend becoming famous, I mean, Shakespeare wrote about it in <laughs> in the in the Hen, in the Henry plays that that Orson Welles made into Chimes at Midnight. That there is something that happens yep. when your friends blow up, it, it, and it's not always laid so bare, and the characters are not always so universal to us. But to me, part of the horror in this is the punishment for a job well done. And I think that's something that people who have lived in, who have worked in, maybe not just in the entertainment business, but definitely in the, in the entertainment business, can recognize of believing so much, listening to you talk about this, hearing, I mean, I heard this in your interview in the projection booth, just this, the, you can still hear the love and affection you have for these guys and it, there's a there's a tragedy and a sure. horror to that that i mean i'm super excited that you are that you're taking ownership of your story and that you like we root for the survivor in that tale but it's a lot harder road 
And so, yeah, I think that when we're talking about the ending, and I think that's where sort of the crux of where the the life, the Zapruder film factor of this film, as opposed to its creative intentions, that's where it goes off the rails, that we all went into 1995 thinking that things were going to be glorious, and then dot, 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 look at the rest of our lives. You know, I don't want to give the litany of things that we've lived through since then, but I feel like the film has this odd prescience that comes from being ignorant of just how hard the world it's going into the next morning is. Anyway, that's my rant. But what do you make? I mean, I think I think I think that's just perfectly said. And I'll tell you, though, that it I had no idea of that at the time, because at the time I was living in that world where I believed I had this like you know, this epic optimism, you know, where I believe that, you know, that where this was going was all up and not just, you know, going all up uh, as far as me as a, as, like, I'm talking like, I felt like we were cleaning ourselves up as people, as a people. Yeah. yeah, consciousness was expanding. I believe the world was becoming a better place. I believe that the old shitty people were dying off. And I mean that fucking literally, you know, and, you know, not that I'm wishing death on anyone, but see you later, you know, because I felt like the world has been, you know, suppressed and oppressed and repressed by these people forever. And it's, and, and, and it's all ignorance-based because I really, you know, I really believe that we were actually, you know, going through that change and, and, and no, that change, that change never happened. Speaking to that, to that first horror, just to kind of give you some perspective on that, you know, um, to put it simply, uh, you know, as far as the transition from, you know, making this film, um, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm sorry to be a little scattered. First, let me address the, the, this. Yeah, I mean, when I speak about them, when I go back in time, I talk about this and I'll tell you, it took me getting mentally healthy. By the time I did the projection booth interview, my mental health had improved substantially. Prior to that, I'd been, in, I'd been immersed in a deep depression that produced suicidal ideation and all kinds of real serious issues you know i'd gotten to the point where i'd been planning a suicide and the whole thing had gotten really completely out of control fortunately i live with an angel and she uh you know saw this degradation happening and she got proactive and she started putting on these supplements supplements these natural supplements and my mental health slowly started to improve and as my mental health improved you know i was able to go back into back in time and remember the affection, and remember the love, and remember the fun times that we had together, the laughter. We, we, I never laughed more in my life than I did in the presence of Leonardo DiCaprio. He's one of the funniest people I ever knew. And we were surrounded by more and more and more funny people. It was just this incredibly, it was just this incredibly fun time. And so, yeah, when I go back into that, and I remember all the things that I was buying into in that life, um, I think about it affectionately, you bet. And that's, and that's sort of what paved the way to me for me to be able to write a book about it. Because, you know, if I wrote, if I tried to write a book while I was immersed in this, this deep depression, which, you know, was a decades long depression, if I had tried to, um, uh, you know, write in this, in this, in this state of mind, you know, it would have been a woe is me book, you know, it would have been a book about, you know, it wouldn't have been a, wouldn't have been a book about our spirit. It wouldn't have been a book about our love for film. Our, 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 our um, insatiable appetite for experiment. I mean, we wanted to try everything. We did here's some of the, the crazy little shits we were doing, playing with this, with this movie and the risks that we knew we were taking while we were doing it. You know, we weren't afraid to fail because, you know, we had come to terms with the idea that that could happen. 
you know? And once we came to terms with the, the idea that failure was a possibility in the work, we were, we were set free completely, set free. And, you know, we weren't gonna create a masterpiece and nor did we, but we were able to touch something, you know, something, you know, real, something timeless. You know, people to this day are, are having the same reaction to Donald's plum that they had in 1996 and 1997 when we were mm -hmm. doing private screenings. They're having the same reaction to the movie 25 fucking years later. That's a filmmaker's dream come true. So I'm absolutely passionate about all of that history because it, become, it became more meaningful in 2021 uh, by virtue of its tenacity and its, and its, and its, and its uh, you know, and its, and its constant relevance. It's never been irrelevant. And, and that's because, because what we were able to touch in our own scrappy way was a truth that exists in the human condition in this country that we can all recognize and see in not only ourselves, but in the people that we know and knew. And I think that's really fucking amazing. And it's scary at the same time because it fucking tells you that we're, we're, we're not progressing, we're not getting anywhere. And that's a part of the horror story here, for sure. In fact, you could say we're regressing. How could you have so little progress on women's rights after all of these fucking years? How? How could there be even a notion of it? Let alone what's going on with, you know, race and inequality. So it's just, it's just, I'm sorry. I oh, no, 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 you don't, don't apologize at all. No, no, I, I just, it made me think of. So Leonardo DiCaprio's characters, uh, the targets of if we can look at him uh, if this is a if this is a horror film and there's a monster in the movie he kind of fulfills the role of the monster the sympathetic monster whatever in that he has certain targets and certain victims one is the the uh, heavy african american woman one is the uh buddy holly looking uh guy one okay. is the hippie girl one is his gay friend, and you could say that on a like on a predatorial level, there's also Jenny Lewis is in there some way. But also, I feel like her character is more in interesting because she isn't entirely sympathetic. Like the other ones, you're all like, he's just kind of picking on you, and that sucks. Whereas with her, it's a more complicated dynamic that's going on. But I wanted to talk with I wanted you to talk a little bit about the decision of who his targets are in this film. Did that, was that built into the structure of it or was that improv? Talk about that. And I think particularly since she's your own, wait, is she the only, well, the, the, the heavy set black woman, uh, I feel like her, that is the most, if, if this is jaws, that's the most brutal attack. There's something about right. that, that, and I've written in, I think in reading about it, I think that's the one that sits the worst and hurts the most. And so I kind of like to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, well, that, that is an interesting story. So, so uh, with regards to the, the, the black lady in the movie uh, who is heavyset and who uh, Derek uh, in particular makes fun of her weight. And so, uh, again, uh, originally, our original vision for Don's Plum, which was then called the Saturday Night Club, by the way, was that we would uh, shoot, you know, our cast in these uh, fictional situations, and then we would cut that juxtaposition, juxt 
opposed to real life documentary footage. And so we wanted to, I wanted to, ta uh, to tackle obesity in America because obesity in America is a, is a problem, was a problem, continues to be a problem. So, um, so I, uh, we, so the original scene was written for a, a, a giant white, uh, 450 pound dude that we picked out of, that we cast, we cast him from extras casting. And this guy was like 450 pounds. He was coming into the, the restaurant. It was going to be, he was going to be this massive thing. And, uh, so that was our original cast casting choice. And the topic was obesity in America. And then, and then, um, on the day on the day of, uh, we got word from our, our our casting company. They were like, "He's not coming." And so uh, I, I I turned to RD and I was like, "What are we going to do?" And we decided to send out some PA to go look for any obese person they could find on the streets of Los Angeles and see if they'd like to be in a movie. And so we sent out uh, two sets of scouts uh, while we set the shot up. And they scoured downtown in the valley and everywhere where we know, you know, where there was like high foot traffic. And she was the the, the person they came back with. And and so it what was super interesting about it was that um, you know, her her you know, her her race had nothing to do with it. Um she was there because of her weight and her weight only. And it was a really, it was actually a kind of a sweet and tender thing on the set because uh, she showed up and we were very uncomfortable with the idea of shooting her at first, but she was in control of the situation. She was like, I'm comfortable with this. We go right ahead and do this. And she was very verbose about it. And even Leo had approached her and said, look, I'm gonna be saying terrible things and I'm gonna be treating you kind of bad and I'm already feeling bad. And she's like, you don't have to feel bad about nothing. And they even had a little hug and it was just a tender, it actually makes me a little emotional. It was a really, you know, really tender moment. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. And then, no, um, I'm and really then glad uh, I we shot and, and, and there, it, we shot the scene and, and he was brutal and he attacked her as he promised he would. And that's all written, you know, Leo's character, Derek was meant to, was written that way. It wasn't a choice. You know, he, he, uh, I would say he escalated it. There was this moment, I think you might have heard me say this, in, in, you know, somewhere, somewhere else along the way, but there was a moment when, when we were talking about building Derek as a character. He said, I'm going to play him as, an, as, as my asshole self times 10. And we were like, that's perfect. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, um, so he was brutal and, 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 and then he went after her. And then when we cut, uh, we went and checked her well-being. We were like, how are you? And uh, she was like, I'm fine. She's like, but I'll tell you what, if they had done that. And we, we were one take, no rehearsal. You know, we didn't get that much shot in, in, in two days without by doing a whole bunch of takes so we were just one take no rehearsal on everything that we could and uh so we run her through and then after the scene she says oh she says but in real life i would have dressed him down for talking to me that we're talking about me that way and we we're just like oh shit it's an improv movie you should have fucking done that and so we felt like we lost something interesting uh interestingly enough we, we uh there was i felt pain because i wanted to shoot it again and, and and rd was ready he was like well first of all we're not gonna shoot it again because we can't and he was like, and even if we did, you know, that kind of authentic, that moment is gone now. And now she's going to, she's going to come up with something contrived yeah. because she had a reaction, you know, but isn't that yeah. a cool story about her? She was a lovely, lovely woman. And uh, she was, she was brave. And, you know, we didn't think about anything in terms of what there might be racially uh, represented in there because, you know, there was, there was zero thought about that. Um, I think today, if I were to cast that, or if I were to make this movie today, 
I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have let that scene go down like that. Yeah, I think I would have changed the scene. You know. So that leads to the melt the fight at the table with uh, who's the actress who plays the hippie girl who gets picked up by Kevin Connolly's character, Amber Benson. Amber Benson. Sorry. No, you're good. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but. That leads to that blow up. Now there's stories again as someone who like I got a videotape of this in 95. I have one of the cuts. So mine still has time code, the version that I've lived oh. with. Uh, it, it has stuff that was best, cut you've out. You've got the best cut of the movie. You have the best cut of the movie for sure. <laughs> you do. Uh, That's the best cut of the movie for sure. It's not the best looking, but it's no, it's, it's, it doesn't cut. matter. It's funny. I watched it again last night and I and actually Jerry had sent me the link to the it, the actual HD one. copy. And yeah. and I was just like, nah. And it, it started running. I was like, oh, man, this like the sound of this is so bad. But my feeling for it again, that's what part of my own personal experience that like the Zapruder tape quality of it is like it's like having a bootleg of your favorite band. And yeah. But it's like it, for me, it's so special because like having a friend who's kind of in that band. So you got a tape. So it's a personal thing. So anyway, my point is I've been following this a long time. And one of the stories around the films that I've heard lots of different rumors. Now, is that a real fight that, or a real meltdown that happened between them? Was that organized? Because her reaction is also part of what is visceral for me. Like I re I've been her in more situations yeah. than I've been him. And the way that scene goes down is very real. You've captured something very real. Uh, the I would call it the cowardice of groups. Do you want to talk about how that scene went down? Yeah, let's see. So um, we went through a, a, a pretty extensive casting uh, process for the time and resources that we had. Uh, I can't really tell you how many uh, to be sure, but probably a couple hundred girls uh, over uh, you know a ten day period. Uh, we rotated them in and out of rehearsals, and that was how we did our casting session because it was improv. We didn't have sides or anything like that, so we'd bring the girls in and we would sit them at the table with the guys, and we would consider that rehearsal for the guys, audition for the girls, and that's sort of how uh, we went through the process of finding finding our our actors um, and. Um, uh, Amber was on RD's list. He loved her from the Soderbergh film that she's in that I can't remember the name of. Uh, King of King of the one of his really early ones. Oh yeah, um, I I didn't know. Was it I honestly King of the Hill? But it's not it. I think it is King of the Hill. You're right. You're absolutely right. It, it, is King might, of the it might be right. So one of the early early Soderbergh films, and she's in it. RD really liked her in that. Amber Benson, and so he called her in, and you know she auditioned like the rest of the girls, and she stuck around longer than than most, and we rotated her into a couple of roles and she really seemed to fit Amy well. And so we liked her and we ended up uh, in a situation where we as a group kind of sat around and talked about all the girls. And we as a group decided that Amber Benson was, was, was good and we were gonna cast her and that she was our best candidate. And Amy, the role uh, uh, that she, she got was, uh, it wasn't a hotly contested role. Like there weren't a lot of great candidates for it. Um, so it was kind of like a meh at the moment kind of feeling about that particular character. You know, Meadow Sister was red hot in Juliet, and uh, and 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 certainly Jenny Lewis as Sarah was just the, the, the just absolutely amazing. And so um, that role, you know, yeah. So 
but we went with Amber and, and, and Ardeen and I did it enthusiastically. We thought she was great in the auditions. Um, I don't know, maybe it was a week before shooting, Leo calls us up and he wants to talk about Amber. And he's like, you know, I just don't think she's strong enough and it's bothering me. And so he asked us uh, to, to try and find somebody else for the role of Amy. And this is whatever, I mean, I'm talking like days, could be a week, I don't know, very short period between where we were and shooting. And, and so we hung up the phone and talked about it. And we were just not happy with the idea of doing that. And, um, and so uh, we decided uh, that the best way to do it was to, was to have Derek, since Derek was already written as this, you know, just, just this you know, god awful human being that we would just have him attack her, uh, verbally assault her until the point, to the point that she leaves and then she'll go. And so we, we called her up and we said, hey, Amber, here's the situation. We were, we were just absolutely forthright with her. We were like, you know, Leo wanted us to move on with a different actor. We'd prefer this solution. Would you be down? Would you be willing to do this? Because my, my guess is he's going to come at you pretty hard. And she was cool with it. And we called up Leo and we're like, Leo, we're not happy with this idea. This solution's not cool. But here's a solution we do like, and, and we hope you'll be down with it. And he actually got excited about it. He was like, so I get to just like completely unleash on her. Absolutely, we said. And so we had this arrangement, this contract between these two parties, and uh, we move forward with it. And I'll tell you, man, once again, just like Leo, uh, Leo is a consummate professional, was then, I imagine still, still is today. He, you know, he talked great, you know, he, he had no personal issue with Amber Benson whatsoever. He was kind to her. He prepared her for what was coming. He was like, I'm going to be extremely brutal. She's like, bring everything you got. We were super excited about it because it was a conflict that didn't previously exist in the writing. And so no, we, we, we got some, we got some, we got some really cool, some real creative benefit out of it. Oh, that's um, great. And, and then when it, when it actually rolled and, 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 and the camera, when the camera, cameras actor actually rolled, you know, you know, the, 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 the glass being thrown, that was not written her, you know, Amber throwing her, her sandal was not written. That was all, you know, brand new live on the spot improv. So that, that improv last... about the, the irony of the Birkenstock, that's a Jenny Lewis original? That's a hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent Jenny <laughs> on the spot original. Yeah. So uh, it was a great moment, man. We were, when that glass, you know, when that glass hit, I wanted to call cut, even though it's not my job to. And RD just grabbed a hold of me because he and I were just tied at the hip, right? So RD just grabs me, like making sure I don't say shit because he wanted like it to just sit and like soak mm -hmm. in this idea. Because when Leo threw that glass, none of us had any clue. And that was a real glass. And that was a fucking stupid thing to do. It was dangerous. He should never have done it. But he did it. It happened. We captured it. We, we, we continued to, 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 uh, to, you know, roll afterward to make sure we got all as much as the, of, of the after effects as possible. But the reason why you see Leo react so viscerally to the fact that he threw that glass is because it's a real glass. It was a really fucking stupid and dangerous thing to do. And in most other sets, there'd be a fucking, you know, there'd be, there'd be, there'd be a shit fit about it for safety, you know? And, um, but he did it anyway. And there it was. And it was like really, it turned out to be like such an amazing moment. And so, and then when we got, and the best part about it, dude, was, like before the glass, right? So she goes storming off and she throws her Birkenstock, her sandal and runs through the doors. And now when she runs through the doors, our D and I are right there with Video Village. So she runs through the doors, Amber Benson. And she's fucking, she's like, oh shit, I threw my sandal. And she looks down and our D's like, go get it. She's like, what? Go get it fucking now, go get it. So she turns around and walks in. Like those guys do not know she's coming back. That is all 
you know, straight up brand fucking new. And so she turns around, out she goes, runs at the dad at, at the table to get her broken stock and you know the rest ensues. That's uh one of many great scenes. Now, my favorite scene in the movie is the at the beginning. This is no I don't know if there's any horror involved in this. This is just pure like just I want I got to fan out with you a little bit. The opening yeah. scene that that dance number musical scene with Toby Maguire, which is to me, this is the first time I've ever seen Toby Maguire as on film is that scene. I'm watching and thinking, okay, they wanted to get Tom Waits. They couldn't get Tom Waits. Chucky Weiss wasn't available. What's like, I, this is not the Viper room, but it might be smalls, but it's not smalls. Like I know this place and these, these places. So I'm watching it partly with an insider's eye, partly just like this is audacious to have this dance musical scene in the aesthetic that I totally love. Right. Do you want to talk about that scene? When, how does that get, uh, how does that end up in this movie? Yeah. I'm happy to. So we, we, um, we shot the first three days and from that yielded everything that you see in the diner and in the back room with, Kevin and the producer and with Leo and Jenny, you know, the, the uh, Jerry Swindoll and Leonardo DiCaprio scene, the Jerry and, um, or they go to Leon and, and Derek scene, um, all the bathroom scenes, all that was shot in the three days. Uh, much of the opening like montage stuff was shot with our B, with our B unit, uh, all that in those first three days. And then uh, we, we, cut, uh, we cut everything we shot together and we ended up with somewhere between 72 and 75 minutes of the film. And uh, everything that we, we had sent out a B unit to do all of our establishing shots of all the characters uh, at their homes and various other locations. And, uh, and it was a disaster what they returned. It was horrible, just unusable stuff. And it wasn't their fault. It was just like a ridiculous thing to even ask them to do. We get no gear, a camera and an actor and, we're, and no crew. And we're like, make it happen. And they came back with shit because we gave them shit. But um, uh, so after we, we assembled the 72 to 75 minutes, we, uh, we knew we needed to reshoot all that stuff. And so, um, and that meant we can start over. And I don't know, somewhere around uh, probably uh, January 96, you know, we got a call from Leo and he was like, hey man, I mean, there's this, and you're gonna love this because you'll remember this club. He's like, there's this really cool act at the Union. Do you remember the Union? Yeah. Yeah, so that's the union on Sunset. Okay. So, so he goes. Uh, Who was goes, the act? Leo, Toledo Diamond. He's still, he's still, he's still fucking going to this day. Still going. Um, Toledo Diamond. He had this act. Leo invited, like, invited us all. He's like, "You guys got to come check this out." It was the hottest thing I'd ever seen. Like, it was just so on fire hot. Like, it was like, fuck. Like, you watched that show and you just wanted to go out and just fuck anything that walked i mean i hate to be crude but it was just it was just hot as hell and so we rd and i went with all of our friends uh, you know at leo's uh, behest and and the show blew me away it was so sexually charged and i felt like that's what our first 72 minutes was in don's plum i felt like it was just purely sexually charged energy you know there was just nothing but you know hormones and testosterone flying all over the place in, on that table and in that bar and so um, I just felt like it fit, and, and so did RD. And, and so as soon as we saw the show, we knew right there we were. You know, I mean, we drove we we drove home, and on the ride home, we were like, we have to put this this is it. This is what we're going to open the film with. And so I took that, and I went and I actually scripted all that all those scenes. Um, 
And, uh, and we, uh, I think it was like, if it wasn't the next day, it was within a couple that we drove out to the union uh, to go talk to the, we we're just gonna talk to whomever might be there. We were on Sunset Boulevard, driving around talking about it with Jerry Metters, I believe, but uh, Jerry may not have been there, but I think he might've been actually, I'm not positive. But in any case, we were like, hey man, like uh, let's just drop in and, and talk to somebody because we're talking about it. We want this guy in the movie. So we, we were on Sunset, we jumped out of the car, went to the union. He was there rehearsing Toledo. We pitched him right there. We just said, hey, we're making this movie. It's with this, this hot up and coming actor, Leo DiCaprio, and we want you in it. And uh, he came on board. And here's the coolest thing about this. And this movie just kept having these like really cool little things that happened that ended up on camera. You know, there's all these little stories about films and well, somebody did this and somebody did that, but you get these like precious moments. Like when, you know, like when, when, when uh, Harrison Ford, you know, shot the guy with the swords cause he was sick that day. Yeah. Right. Like the, we had, a, we had a bunch of these little types of things happening in our film. So not nearly as impactful as that, obviously, but like, you know, um, in that, in the Toledo diamond stuff. So we show up at the union uh, to shoot and, uh, and Toledo's there with his band and his dancers. And we're, you know, we're, we're starting to set everything up and, you know, kind of figure out what our blocking and, you know, all these kinds of things while camera and, and lights are busy, you know, getting their gear up. And Toledo comes up to me and, and Ardini, he's like, hey man, he's like, I got a surprise for you guys. And he's like, surprise and is like, like we're gonna shoot this surprise? He's like, yeah. And I was like, well, we have to know what it is because we gotta tell the fucking, we have a, we're shooting a film, we have to know what we're shooting. And he was like, well, I don't want to, it's a surprise. And we were like, okay, fine, let's just, we'll hook him up with, with John Schindler, who was uh, our line producer. And so, um, uh, so Toledo went over in the corner with John and told him what he had planned for us. And so then they figured it out logistically, what, how they were going to shoot it. And, uh, and then we, uh, you know, when, it went, when the time came for his surprise to be unveiled, uh, it was the girl singing, you know, uh, you know the, the part with the mic where she's like, and she's doing the, alter, the, the, the lyrics, you know, he yeah. wanted to fuck me, not just fuck me, but fuck me, you know? Yeah. Only, only the me that he knew, like that, all that yeah. really sexy shit. So, so that just came out of nowhere. Like we didn't, we didn't see that at his in his act ever. We never knew that existed. When we asked him for the masters, we didn't that he didn't give us a master with her performance on it because he had two cuts. He had just his 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 live performance cut, which 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 does not have that performance. And then he has um, the one with her and that performance as well. That's all sort of added content to the song, and so that was all just thrown in on the spot while we were at the uh, at the diner. But, or I'm sorry, at the Union Club. But yeah, he was brilliant. Uh, we just loved him, and yeah, man, of course. I mean, everybody knew he was he was basically uh, a Tom Waits act of sorts. But he had his own thing going on too. And um, oh, definitely. You know, the, yeah, he's, it was like you could tell he was wildly inspired by Tom Waits, but it was in a good way. I mean, he's spilling that acid jazz all over the place, man. The guy was like. He was just super cool, I thought, and uh, and we got lucky with it. Um, you know, it it just I, I mean you can you I think you agree because you you're you're calling it you know some of your favorite stuff in the film. It just uh, it just worked with everything. Like I knew we could tie it in with what we were headed toward at the diner and do it relatively seamlessly. Some argue that we go on too long about it, but I, it was just hard not to. It was there are always people who do that. They don't. They have they have no joy in their lives. Um, yeah. <laughs> critics, people, there are people who have to watch three movies in a day. I get it, but that's not how anyone who actually likes movies watches them. Uh, I do want, there's, I, I do want to speak to something because this brings us back to the horror. Sorry, it is the month of mm -hmm. wrongtober, 
And so yeah. it is, we, we are obligated to, to frighten ourselves into winter. Uh, yes. But this scene, as an actor who played kind of similar roles, a, 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 a Tobey Maguire type actor, you know, uh, dark haired, every man type roles. That's like, I, so I watch it from a sense, but, and that can make you competitive with an actor. I didn't have, feel that at all, but watching that, I'm like, this is such lo- cinematic love for Tobey Maguire. By this time, Leonardo DiCaprio is already a star, but nobody knows who this guy is. And you drape him in such a cool thing in this after so this is just trying to place it so the fi- the filming finishes it's great and toby mcguire is still into it and you make this basically a music video around him being awkwardly adorable in a way that if i was casting movies i want that guy in my movie and like i said i think just that scene alone Still has me on Team Toby Maguire as an actor. I understand. If you imprint on someone as a as as a movie star, you know, I still you know I I still like Mel Gibson's movies. I don't you know I can't help it because I imprinted on Mad Max and films that are that before I knew that I should be wary. So I guess the point of all of this is I think watching this and when you watch it, I wonder what you think. It is. Were you consciously trying to place Tobey Maguire on par with Leonardo DiCaprio as like, these are two stars, when only at that point, really one of them is a star? Yeah, so no, he, uh, yeah, I like that. So yeah, no, he, 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 um, he was the benefactor of, uh, you know, a creative opportunity. Like he, um, he's just, you know, Tobey Maguire is a lucky man in general. I, 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 uh, I believe, and he was lucky in this case. You know, he, he no, absolutely not. So, um, no, that's right. You're, you, Tobey Maguire was was absolutely nobody at the time, and and he was he was as much a a sort of you know struggling actor as anyone I knew. He was auditioning like everybody I knew. You know, he wasn't. He didn't have to hold down a second job because he had a couple of series under his belt, so he had some money and some residual money coming in that kept him you know afloat. But he drove an old shitty Toyota and, uh, you know, he was he was hanging on. I mean, you know, there are moments in the film where people where, where, where you know, their, their real shit comes out. And there's that moment where yeah. Leo says, you know, poor guy wears the sh- same shirt every day. And you can see how much that hits Toby because there was a, a you know, a, a, you know, a class disparity between the two of them. There was a class disparity between all of us and Leo, except maybe Connolly. Connolly was killing it on unhappily ever after financially at the time so he was doing really well financially nowhere near what leo was doing but still so um no he was just a fucking benefactor of like a creative opportunity you know we saw this his character fit best for the situation you know we we we, uh, we were able to bring juliet in uh we thought meadow would would really you know be beautiful in that scene and in that and in that environment you know so we, we felt really good about about her in that world. And so it was just a good fit, you know, whereas with, you know, and the other thing is, is like, like, uh, you know, this is, here's some fun shit for you, Andras, that as a fan of the movie. So, you know, we write this, uh, we, we cut this, the first 72, 75 minutes of the movie together. And I write the, 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 all that opening stuff I wrote, uh, tailored really to what we'd cut together 
with the 72 minutes that will eventually fo follow it, right? So the scene between Jenny Lewis and Scott Bloom, right? Sarah and Brad, where they're in the Black Widow's bed, right? He's in the bed smoking the long brown cigarette. She's off in the chair talking, and they have that, that I, what is one of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene. Oh, I, uh, uh, <laughs> okay. You know, I think I know yeah, you know. Yeah, you know, the scene where Scott Bloom's like, you know, uh, I'll give a beautiful bathroom at the end of it, right? So uh, that scene, so that scene comes because, that scene, I wrote that scene specifically because when we were cutting the opening of their scenes at the diner months before I wrote that scene, when we were cutting that stuff, she says in, in, a, in, a, in a conversation about him, because we had a backstory that they had sex, she said, she says to him, I don't want you to talk about tonight. Not that there is something to talk about, but just, you remember all that? She says all that. Well, because she has a reaction at the table, right? And when he goes, she goes like, hey, so how did you guys, what did you guys do? He's like, oh, you know, we went to the movies. And then he goes, we had a great night. Scott Bloom's character, Brad goes, we had a great night. We had a great night. And the camera's on, we had a shot on, we had an angle on, on, on Jenny. And she was just like, she, she was troubled by him saying that. Now she made a choice there that was not written. We, I had no idea what the fuck she was doing when she was improving that moment when we were shooting back in July. So cut to March, right? Or cut to January when I'm right, uh, December and January when I'm writing all this shit. I'm like, fuck, I'm gonna write to that reaction. So, so, so that means to me that she makes him promise not to talk about the night. Because the only thing I'd come up with was like, you're not gonna mention to anybody that we've had any kind of fucking sex or anything because she wanted to be open, right? because she he was this you know promiscuous sexually sort of confused character and so i was like well i'm gonna write i'm gonna write to all that so i just think that's really fucking cool because that whole thing was based on an expression that she gave us uh in that opening scene in the diner um in the first 72 minutes well that really helps because there is something confusing about how much she is on derek's arm from the very jump yeah even though she's there with the Scott Bloom character. Yeah. And and the turning point there and the turning point there by the way is when when she's upset at him for not t telling her that he's a bisexual. And that was the turning point. That's the turning point in that in the in the, the dy dynamic of that which was written by the way. So uh, the the idea there was that they 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 separated. So what we saw we saw this dynamic between Leo and Jenny that we loved in rehearsals. And so we began writing. In fact, actually, Juliet was supposed to be the character uh, of interest uh, by Derek at the table, Meadow Sisto's character. It was through the rehearsal process that we saw that there was a better dynamic or a dynamic we, we saw more fun to exploit between Jenny and Leo as, 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 as performers, as, as actors. And so we switched it. And, and, and in order to switch that, we had to create this catalyst for that and the catalyst was that brad had withheld this information about her sexuality and then we were able to bring to bear from that the debate about why is there a double standard to uh, you know uh, and stigma around being a homosexual a gay homosexual man compared to being a lesbian woman and so we were able to like put or, or to have let you know uh, uh, you know sexual curiosity bi bisexual curiosity as a woman compared to bisexual curiosity as a, as a man, there was a, there was a big difference, you know, in our society on feelings about that. And we wanted to explore that. Oh, yeah. And wait, on that, uh, on the subject of 
Scott Bloom, what what's the deal with him in this film? He's he kind of if we don't know who anyone else is, he sort of shows up as the star because he's the first one we see. He has this through line with Jenny Lewis, and yet he obviously didn't become a big star after this film. And I haven't really heard from him at all. So I'm just kind of curious, how did he become a part of this? Was he a part of that crew at that time? Just tell me the story of Scott Bloom and Don's Plum. Yes. So Scott Bloom was definitely a part of our group, right? A, a very uh, a key part of it. And he was there long before I ever got involved. It's a funny thing, Scott Bloom, because he has a bit of a complex. And this is true. He has a bit of a complex of being kind of forgotten. He's like this guy who... Like never got like when when they talk about the so-called pussy posse in the press, rarely do they ever mention his name. You know they talk about Connolly and they talk about Lucas Haas and they talk about all these others, but they never bring up they never really bring up Scott. It's kind of a, a and it's a kind of a funny thing because it's hard not to forget Scott Bloom. Like even even like uh, in my uh, like in my deposition archive, I have everybody's depositions except Scott Bloom's. I have no idea. Why I don't have Scott Blooms? It's this weird thing where Scott is kind of there and not there at the same time. It's just a weird, and he and he actually is living it. And I, I know this because I actually ran into him in 2010 or 2011. It was the first time I'd seen him in years and years and years. And uh, it was the last time I'd, I'd seen I'd seen him also. But we kind of talked about that because every time you know any press came up about Don's Plum. For some reason, Scott Blooms is just, just his, his 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 name is not on anyone's tongue. It's a weird thing. And yet, I think that, and I, I, actually, I think what all that is is I think that's like like just pure evidence of how uh, Don's Plum, um, you know, not only could have helped him but really hurt him, you know. And th- and this is the thing that I think that you know, in, in terms of the horror of it all, you know. And the horror theme is, is, is you know, that I, I don't think people recognize as much is that it wasn't just, you know, me and R.D. and Jerry that were, were being harmed here. Um, it was all these other actors. And Scott Bloom was just, the impact on him was huge. Yeah, it's true. None of us really saw him again. And acting was something he loved and something he wanted to do. Sure, he wanted to expand to other things like writing and so on. But he was acting that, you know, where his first love was. And, and, and you know, I, he and I were very close friends. Um, and um, you know, and yeah, between writing and acting, I mean, those were his two, you know, super big passions. You know, he, he loved music, but he wasn't much of a musician. His brother, although uh, his brother, on the other hand, uh, Michael Bloom was like a huge, like he's amazing guitarist. But anyway, I digress. Scott Bloom, you know, it's just a weird thing. You know, he's 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 a he's a guy I've been with personally just because he was a part of really the big betrayal of Don's Plum and of us personally. Um, but his talent, I thought, is was just on all over the film. And it's just so weird to me that he doesn't get the recognition I think he truly deserves for a performance that I thought was really mysterious and dark, deep, and and I think uh, was a big part of the, a big part of the overall, overall experience of the film. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, well, I'm glad we're, we're getting a chance to talk about it. I guess I, I find myself relating very deeply to, I relate to him as a, in that dynamic more than I do to anyone else. Like he seems so uncomfortable with these guys and to the point of hostility and not necessarily just the queerness, but just the, yeah, just that discomfort. Like he's, he's the only one there who seems sensitive 
all the way through the film. And yeah, and now hearing his story makes me even more sympathetic to him. Uh, so. Yeah, he, I, I have this scene in the book where uh, he he takes me aside and he um, and he well I take him aside actually because he's kind of withdrawn from the rehearsals and I'm and I'm saying and I say to him you know what's going on like you're you're kind of just out of it and he goes he, and he's like and he said this and I, and I love him for saying this and this is you know this is in some substance how it went down but he was just like I don't want to sit here and compete for screen time with Leonardo DiCaprio and that's what I see that's what I see that's going on right now. And it was a really cool thing because, you know, we were sitting here trying to mold these performances around what we knew was going to be this really big deal, right? This Oscar-nominated actress sitting at the table. And here's this guy not only recognizing our problem, but identifying with it in a completely different way than we were, you know, from our, from our angle, from our side. And, and it caused him to withdraw from the, from the, the film or from the, 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 the improv. Yeah. And then we finally, you know, you know we, we finally found where he, his comfort sort of, you know, was in that situation. And I, I felt like he, he got a great hold of it and, it and it showed up in his performance. But it was just wonderful to see him in this, you know, place where I think, you know, most people in Hollywood would have been like all about the opportunity to be on screen with Leonardo, with Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, that was Kevin Connolly all the fucking way. Yeah. Like he, he was he was all about it. You know, he was about going to town with Leo. He was about, you know, putting a performance down that, you know, could be, you know, could that, that you know, that, 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 that proved his seat at the table, so to speak. But, uh, but Scott was not interested in any of that stuff. He was, he was really interested in trying to find the substance of, you know, a character. And he was one of the braver guys too. Like, you know, we, we actually came at him with a, a different character. We came at him with a, a transvestite and, uh, and he was like, nah, I don't want to, I don't want to play a transvestite. And, 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 but he didn't like, but we had this idea that we want to introduce these elements of what we thought were, you know, struggles for our generation that were sort of like, you know, this, that we were carrying around that really belonged to our parents, you know, and that we were carrying around and holding on our backs that, you know, that, 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 you know, have in its pockets, the bigotry of, you know, of, 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 you know, our fathers and their fathers and all this other crap. So we were really into that idea of, of putting that on the table and saying, Hey, we're not afraid of these issues and we're not afraid to talk about them and put them on display. And so when he didn't want to go full on trans, he, you know, he was the one who sort of invited this opportunity to create a bisexual male character, which was unusual in certainly anything that you might want to try to push into the mainstream at that time. And so we were like, fuck, this is great. You know, and he embraced that. So I just love all these things about Scott. I only believed, you know, at the time, I, he and I were very passionate. We read a lot of the beat, uh, the beat generation guys, you know, like uh, we loved, uh, you know, whether it was William Burroughs or Bukowski or Kerouac was one of our favorites. We used to listen to Kerouac's. Actually, his it was his it was his um, uh, CD collection or, or his uh, yeah it was a CD I think of. You ever hear those Kerouac tapes of him with the, the blues and jazz band? Well, he riffs. You know, like hike, like American yeah. style haiku and stuff. Yeah, yeah fucking great stuff, right? Uh, he introduced me to all that stuff, actually. And so, you know, we were these passionate guys. You know, I wrote poetry because, you know, I would hang out with him and we would have these incredible nights and I would go home and I would fucking write poetry afterwards, you know, just because I felt like, you know, that was what, what like that we were steeping in creativity and in, um, you know, just creative energy. And that was Scott, you know, that was, that was what he was all about. It, it, it is heartbreaking to see that he, um, he didn't find his way either. 
you know, there was some of us, you know, we got knocked off this thing with this, with all this, this nonsense from Toby Maguire and such. So, you know, we got knocked off this horse and, you know, some of us, some people couldn't get knocked off, right? Like Toby or, or Leo or even Connolly for that matter, even though he, it took him a while to get back on. Some of us just weren't able to get back on. And, and it's, and it's, it's, it's strange to see that one of those casualties was, you know, somebody who is and remains to this day very close to, to Leo. Yeah. Well, one of the mysteries, another aspect of the horror. Okay, well, how about uh, we go back to Jenny Lewis? We were talking about Jenny Lewis. Yeah. And so we used that opportunity then to sort of create the separation and drift her toward Derek where then, you know, he, he could feel the vibe on her, get his arm around her and start playing with her nipples and that sort of stuff, which we didn't write. Yeah, her reactions to that, that's where her character becomes much more interesting and conflicted to me when, yeah, I guess throughout, I think the character wants to be sympathetic, but the actor playing that character is insisting on bringing something else to it. And so I just love how you have to read, you had to retroactively add context to meet the complexity of the performance. That's, that's yeah, all fantastic. of it. Like, like, like you know, uh, uh, or just story too. You know, I mean, the last, you know, the last line in Don's Plum is "fucking cunt," and that line is delivered by Kevin Connolly and was written after we got that improv out of he and Bethany uh, Ashton, who played Grace Forster. Uh, you know, so after we'd gotten that uh, from them, then we were like, oh, so let's, and uh, well, that's not actually true. The, 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 that, that catalyst came from, so we had all this explosive shit happen, you know, whatever it was a week or a day, uh, a few days before we were shooting between Amber and Leo and Leo wanting to replace her. So we, we, we go through all this and we jump through these hoops to make it work for, for all parties and to help the film. And we get this performance out of Amber Benson. So all of that Jeep smash smashing shit so here's a horror story for you. Yeah, we had we we have a we have a, a, a production designer. We had a production designer called Louis Traby, Louis Traby the third. He was our production designer, and so I wrote the Jeep being smashed. It was a it was a really funny little dialogue between me and the uh, the producing team uh, as I, as we were cutting. I was uh, I was writing, and I wrote the scene where she destroys the Jeep, and they were like, "We can't afford that." And I'm like, "Well, she's." She's being fucking destroyed at the table and she needs now to seek some revenge. And that revenge has to be Jeremy's Jeep. That's the only thing that might make fucking sense. So I'm fighting for it. And then John Schindler comes up with the creative idea of just replacing the windshield um, of the Jeep and possibly the taillights. So that'll work, right? Now that Jeep belongs to our production designer. So we call up our production designer and say, hey, can we get your Jeep again for these reshoots months later? And he's like, yeah, that's no problem. But well, we didn't tell them what we were doing with it. We just got the Jeep. So we take the Jeep, we replace his windscreen with a, a one that we purchased. And we replaced the tail lens caps with ones we had purchased. And then we started teaching Amber Benson how to swing a bat and break those things, right? So we, we, we film it and it's in the film as, you, as, you, as you've seen it, right? We smashed those glasses, all that glass and all sort of stuff. So Louis had no idea. We get the car detailed, we clean it up, we replace the windscreen with his, no harm, no foul. We return his Jeep to him. We never heard his Jeep one iota, right? We never touched his Jeep with the, with the, with the bat. And then we cut to, you know, this MGM screening for a cast and crew. And of course, Louis is attending that screening. <laughs> and so for the first time, to his horror, he watches his Jeep getting smashed by a chick with a bat. 
Uh, and so after uh, the screening, he eventually catches up to me and he's laughing and he says, uh, he's like, I was pulling little cubes of glass out of my fucking Jeep for months. And he's like, I couldn't figure out where the hell it was coming from. And he's like, what is going on? He's like, it was just absolutely baffling. And he's like, I never even thought that it had to do with the shoot because you guys just borrowed my Jeep and returned it. Everything looked normal. But for months he was pulling glass out of it. So how funny is that? That's um, that's a Hollywood horror story. It could happen to you folks. You don't know where. But we wrote, we wrote, yeah, but yeah, exactly. So we wrote this all this shit retrospective, uh, uh, retroactively. I wrote the 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 Jeep smashing uh, retroactively, which led to then you know um, uh, Jeremy's last line. Um, so all of that stuff was uh, you know was dynamic, and I think I've probably gotten off topic, and if I have, I apologize. No, we're talking about the film Don's Plum, so you're not off yeah, okay. topic at all. There now, there this brings us to the to my more uh, my I guess in some ways my most personal connection to the film, in that uh, it that Don is played by Byron Thames, who used mm -hmm. to play in bands uh, when I, my band would play with his, and that was how I got to know Jerry Metters. Part of this scene that feels a lot that's my closest connection just the energy of being in a band that's playing clubs in Hollywood in the mid 90s and acting right. in movies and has people who are in the bands who are also in movies and some of them are becoming very famous and some of them are becoming local famous and some of them are becoming whatever they become I'm, but I'm but seeing Byron Byron Thames show up in this film uh, blew my mind and so I'm kind of curious how did he get into this film well, Bethany Ashton uh, brought both he and, brought, brought, brought both him and uh, Stephanie Cambridge, who played Hello. And um, we were we weren't sure, uh, you know, we kind of all these like these these smaller roles. Uh, many of them were being cast as friends. I played a homeless dude with Ethan Suplee, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, <clears> you're Ethan the guy Suplee with the, that's what that's one with your pants. You're the one whose pants can't yeah, stay up. That's me. That's oh, right. Well, that's right. Well played. Yeah. Well done. Oh, thank sir. you. That's so, a great so, scene. so it's a fun scene. And, uh, you know, all credit goes to, uh, to Jenna Lewis on that one too. She, you know, she was um, just so remarkable in every way in this movie. Like that reaction, just when we saw that, and not only that, but our, our crew, our camera for capturing that, that push on her, that gorgeous zoom in on her while she's mortified by my, you know, character lying sprawled out drunk on the floor while Leah's trying to get me up off of it is just, what a shot, man. It made the whole thing. It made the whole thing. Jenny Lewis is just, uh, again, I think she's a, she was a generational talent. There was not a single moment of her performance that she didn't, you know, give everything, every consideration, the, the detail that she would put in to every mm -hmm. scene. And it came to her, I think, intuitively, probably much the same way her music did. I mean, I used to hang out with her and Blake with some frequency back in the day, and I saw them working together musically often they even sang a song i participated in writing at one point and 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 uh it was a silly song and i'm glad they stopped singing it but nonetheless um uh you know i was witness to this and uh i'm sorry to, to go off on it but it's one of the you know I, so what people don't know and here's you want to talk about more i got my horror for you don's plum was destroyed in a single evening by toby mcguire and what happened was toby mcguire toby mcguire showed up at our house in a in a in a in a fit uh screaming from the top of his lungs that he wanted don's plum to burn 
Um, and this was uh, after Don's Plum had screened uh, for Leo and we got picked up by CAA and we had distributors lined up for the movie and everything was just in great shape. Leo was on board. Uh, there was, there was, you know, everything was just in great shape. Until we'd actually had been out of town uh, shooting uh, a probably the Ang Lee movie, but something like that in New York, he'd finally come to uh, come back home to all of this fanfare about Don's Plum because he had not, he'd only seen a 72 minute cut that did not, that did not have all that Toledo diamond footage and any of the uh, subsequent writing. All, all he had seen was the stuff that we had shot in those first three days cut together in a, in a, in a, in a pretty strong cut at that point. And then he was off to, 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 to New York to work with Woody Allen or somebody. And so uh, when he returned to Los Angeles, we had already screened the film for, for, for Leo and for Leo's agents. And, you know, we had just moved on with the film and the film was on a trajectory to have art house success. And for whatever reason, uh, I have theories, but no one really knows. He freaked out and he wanted this film gone. And so he shows up on our doorstep uh, screaming, he wants to burn the film down. And I spent the entire day and into the next morning, and by into the next morning, I mean all the way until seven or eight o'clock the next morning. So over 12 or 13 hours of trying to calm him down. He was out of his mind. And uh, he eventually uh, 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 how do I put this? He said that I confessed that we, meaning Jerry Matters, Artie Robin, myself, uh, had an agreement to pit the crest, pet press against Leonardo DiCaprio if Leonardo DiCaprio didn't participate with, uh, participate in and support the release of Don's Plum. It's an absolute fabrication. Uh, you, you would, of course, never hear Jerry Matters or Artie Rob uh, in any way admit to something like that would be a stupid thing because it didn't exist. And can, and confessing it to Toby on the eve of my success would be as dumb as dumb gets. So I didn't say anything like that, but I did, and I, we don't need to get into these details necessarily here. And it's something that I think the book goes into at length enough for, for there to be um, you know, a great deal of definition behind it all, but, um, and detail into the conversation that he and I had, because it lasted for fucking eight hours. Um, but needless to say, he took uh, statements that I made and he twisted them into this conspiracy that he brought to Leonardo DiCaprio. And it was so effective and so horrible uh, to Leo. And this was at a time when Leo felt very vulnerable to the press. He felt like his career depended on how he was being portrayed by them or how he might be portrayed by them. And so he was very fearful of how they might, you know, if they might like, you know, we've all seen what the press can do. In the 90s, it even had more power because there wasn't social media to stop any of them or to check any of them. Um, you know, in the 90s, and this particularly the early 90s or midline 90s, as you said, um, you know, uh, stars, stars, uh, movie stars and, and, you know, just sort of celebrity talent. And, you know, they were susceptible and, and he was afraid of that. And so when when Toby brought him this this news, this idea that we were going to do such a thing, Leo, uh, it fractured our friendships uh, and our relationships uh, irreparably, obviously. And it's never been the same. But that all took place in a single day. And so. Uh, and from that day, you know, um, you know, Leo was was quickly becoming the most powerful kid in in, in Hollywood. At that time, he was uh, on the second phase of shooting Titanic. There was this big, long first phase of Titanic. Then they had to get a whole bunch more fun uh, financing, and he went and he was on hiatus at this actual time when we saw Don's Plum and when uh, the the dispute uh, broke out uh, between us. After the dispute, after that, he went and returned and shot the the the, the last bit of Titanic. 
And we all know what happened when that film got released. But prior to that, uh, you know, he was still being touted as the next great thing and so on and so forth. And he had a great deal of power. Uh, when when Toby brought him this, that's when Leo decided that he was going to destroy Don's Plum and me and RD along with it. And if you want to talk about a horror story, you brought this up at the beginning and I'm getting that into it. And I woke up the day after that to a life completely changed. And it's and and it's something that I don't, I don't think a lot of people have experienced. It's one of the most horrifying things I think anyone can go through who is involved in something, you know, involved in a sort of deep social existence. You know, I, I had a lot of friends, the so-called pussy posse, all of them very close. We used the words, I love you, bro, when we meant them. And uh, we were inseparable. Um, and I woke up the next day and all that was gone. But that it didn't stop there. It was it, it, that it penetrated most of Hollywood. There was literally no party I could go to anymore where I wasn't shunned or shamed in some way, where the energy wasn't, you know, uh, and and you know, could some of it have been coming from me? Sure, of course, absolutely. I was so completely fucking damaged at that point because once Leo turned on us, every offer was pulled. Uh, the entire movie was ultimately destroyed. And all of our dreams, everything we'd ever dreamed of and worked for were destroyed. And it wasn't limited, unfortunately, to just Don's Plum. As I said, in 2014, I, I, I was still faced with it. So um, yeah, that's a horror story that I think few people really truly understand. I get a lot of, uh, or particularly, not, not so much now, but particularly when it, well, before, before I started educating the public through a lot of my own personal public, uh, you know, publicity, you know, working, you know, doing interviews with New York Post or, you know, like the Projection Booth and others. Like, I've worked very hard doing a lot of interviews. Like, well, we're having that, quite frankly, to try and tell the story, the true story about 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 Don's Plum and the demise of Don's Plum. Um, because I don't think people understand that there, it wasn't just the film. There was such a catastrophic loss on every level of my life and Artie Rob's life. It, it ultimately destroyed our lives. And I think, yeah, we're, we're, we're now both kind of recovering, you know, and I think that started a lot of, uh, when I began to, to to call for the healing, you know, when I began telling the truth and speaking the truth about what happened at Don's Plum. Because if there's a dispute about any particular intellectual property as you're making that property, and especially if you're doing it loosely with friends, experimentally, et cetera, if there are all these, uh, uh, these circumstances which create space between agreements or however you want to phrase it or, or, or create it in a mental uh, situation, um, there, 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 the only, there, there are other remedies than the complete and total destruction of everybody's work that was involved. And I get particularly passionate about this because one of the horror stories for me is the horror story of Jenny Lewis's act career. I'm happy for her and her fans uh, for what she's done and contributed to the world musically. And I've enjoyed a lot of it. I've gone and seen her without her even knowing uh, on more than one occasion. Uh, I'm a fan of Jenny Lewis's on every level. And I believe that they took away from the world, uh, you know, many future performances from her. And I suppose everyone is okay with that because Jenny Lewis uh, went on to continue, uh, went on to, to, to bring us so much other great work. But that wasn't the case for RD or I. That was, wasn't the case for Jerry in terms of what he's truly capable of. He put some things out, but, but Jerry was capable of so much more than he actually ended up accomplishing. And the only reason yeah. he wasn't able to accomplish, and, and the only reason he wasn't able to accomplish that was because of what these men decided to do to us in Hollywood. There's no more a horror story than that, than waking up one day after one fucking day. You know, Leo didn't take two weeks a month. He didn't like, hey, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's talk it out. Let's hear everyone, what everyone has to say. Let's look at all these supposed claims and, and, and examine them against actual facts and see what holds up. 
And then if it does hold up, exp- you know, find remedies that don't punish Jenny Lewis and Meadow Sisto and Byron Thames and 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 uh, and, and Stephanie Cambridge. And, you know, if you want to punish Dale Wheatley, come after me. If you want to punish Hardy Rob, go after him, Jerry Mitters, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so that was really one of the big, I'm sorry to explode it up in this, in this way and in this direction, but I think that, you know, as we get into the, the, to the horror stories of Don's poem, there's a lot going on, you know, as far as our, our, our struggles artistically within the movie and within our characters and, you know, how things played out dynamically in that respect. But the real horror story of Don's poem is that a beautiful work of art was created, whether you love it or you hate it or, you have, or you're indifferent, it doesn't matter. It's still a beautiful all work of art. It stood the test of time. And it was destroyed over over nonsense and 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 for the and, and for the use and purpose of one person, and um and and I and 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 it's that part of the record that I want known uh, throughout the fucking universe. Don's Plum deserved uh, to be the film um, that people to be to be a part of the, a '90s. Uh, renaissance of independent film you know it's a you know there's so much different weird peripheral damage to Don's Plum like or like damage you wouldn't expect like Don's Plum is not a 2001 film it's just not it's not a part of a and and it doesn't feel right when I see it when I see it with the film it doesn't you know my work in the 2000s was supposed to be vastly different and more sophisticated and grown and matured as I grew and matured but Don's Plum Don's Plum was a part of my 20s Don's Plum was a part of Leo's Leo's 20s it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, it had nothing to fucking do with the 2000s, the, the 2000s. I was a, a different man uh, in the 2000s as I am today in, the, in, in, in now this decade and in, in this century. So, you know what I mean? Like, this is the fucking, the, nu- the nuclear bomb that, that, that was dropped on our heads, you know? And it's taken me 20 fucking years to put myself back together. And I'm finally strong. I'm finally, I finally have a strong voice. You know, I can go on for as long as I have right now, for example. You know, I'm very strong now. But uh, it, it was uh, a lot of rubble to climb out from underneath. It was uh, it was like a sentencing. It was like an execution of my creative self. Uh, there was just so much that happened, and witnessing it and all the others around me and the effect that it had. You know, the burn that it had on so many others. Not just the direct hit like me, R.D. and Jerry, but even people like Bethany Ashton and others who I think would have benefited. I mean, you look at Kevin Connolly's career. It was seven or nine years or something, or six or seven or eight, yeah. nine years after Don's Plum before he got any actual action. And when you look at his performance in Don's Plum, there was no fucking, there can be no doubt yeah. about what would have happened to him if that was released in the 90s theatrically. There can be no fucking doubt about what would have happened to that man's career from that movie. And by the way, it's heartbreaking because when you get into to, to, to Kevin Conlon, the person, which is all backed up, by the way, by his own testimony and his depositions, all Kevin Connolly wanted for Kevin Connolly was a feature film career. And you and I both know that back in the 90s, TV wasn't prestigious. Right. TV was, it was where the sort of where the shit landed, right? It was where bad actors or actors who were finished ended up. It wasn't where actors began or it might be where they began in guest yeah, spots. It, or guest young, spots. where young actors begin on their way to film careers. Right, but everyone's, there. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, everyone yeah. wanted to be, uh, a movie star. That's Kevin that's how Connolly we got was queen. cheesy as fuck for a long time, and then exactly. he got to be an entourage, which for a moment was cool, and now everyone hates. And he probably made really good money. But you're right. If this film had come out and it had been him and Tobey Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio as these young actors in this film that comes out of this 
soup that P.T. Anderson and Quentin Tarantino are coming out of. Yeah, he has a different film career. Absolutely. Completely. Uh, yeah. You know what I wanted to say, just to give you some yeah. idea, just of like the downstream damage. And this is something that I, I've only realized as I've discovered it more. Like I say, I have, a very, I have a great fondness for this film and in general for everyone who participated in it for even their, their mistakes. I, you know, our show sure. is The World is Wrong, and it's extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. And, um, I, and I love that. And, and I, I'm so glad that we get a chance to celebrate what's positive about film because it sure is right. a lot. Of- right. But, but Jerry Metters was one of my strongest allies in Hollywood. As a, he, like he is a, uh, from, the, from very early in my time in Hollywood, he, rec- he saw something with my band and was very supportive of uh, scenes we were a part of. He included us in all these uh, events and he knew me as an actor as well. He did all kinds of, yeah, you know, he was just, he was always one of my great allies in the business. And kneecapping Jerry Metters didn't do me any favors. <laughs> so even well downstream, and well, I, to not make it just selfish, I mean, you are making I'm your, aware I, I mean, of a, well, let me just say, that there's, a, I rep, there's a whole community of people that I was a part of at that time, that Byron Thames and... Dan Byrne and Randy Kaplan and uh, like I could just go on and on with with uh, with amazing people who were part of that scene and that world. And Jerry was an ally to all of us. And he did put all of his resources into this thing to make it beautiful. And yeah, there are there are down. And I think this is one of the things that I like to I wish people would talk about more in the sort of dissection of the power, dissecting the power dynamics that the Me Too movement sort of pulled the lid off of to the degree that it did, is that there are all kinds of impacts to allowing bullies to reign free, be they male or female or whatever. Bullies in general have a lot of downstream impact that go beyond just the people who the ones the sort of obvious victims uh so yeah so there is that that is that's the horror is so intense that as i'm exploring this i'm realizing oh wait a second i am also a victim of this film and that's part of what makes it great actually that's part of what makes it gives it that zapruder film factor of like this film reveals more than you could possibly have intended. And I think that's where I kind of want to bring this as we come to the end of our conversation, which is I went through those times and maybe uh, and went through similar experiences. And I know that film, especially the way you're talking about doing it, can be a really, uh, like I don't want to get too woo-woo, but a shamanic or a magical experience that, you know, like an, like a magic trick, like kids playing with magic, you don't know what kind of energies you're going to scare up. And I'm kind of curious, aside from everything else, you've had this amazing journey because of this film. It's made you the person you are. It's hard for me to hear you say it destroyed the film because I watched it last night. It's The film is still totally there. And you're still totally here. And I'm kind of curious, after having gone through all of this, what is... What's your take on what the magic trick uh, or the shim- or the ritual of Don's Plum has meant for you personally? Well, Don's Plum is like the biggest dis- discovery of, uh, of 
of who I was as a talent. Um, you know, I, uh, Don's Plum was my first uh, feature film, but it was my first film where I, where I had uh, any kind of major creative role. And um, so Don's Plum, um, Don's Plum was just the most, uh, one of the most, uh, you know, it, I, I love this because, uh, you know, when people think about movie magic, they think about, you know, special effects, they think about, you know, CGI, they think about, you know, uh, you know, sleight of hand, you know, they, they think about magic, magic. And, and uh, you know, I, you know, as woo-woo as it sounds, and I'm, you know, you know, I don't really care because I'll tell you that when you, uh, I've developed a lot of properties since then. And, and, and I've, I've consulted a lot of people on, on, on making their first film. And I'm actually, you know, creating some, some, you know, I'm in the process of, 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 of exploring the creation of some materials on, 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 on how to help people uh, produce a quality uh, first film. Um, because to me, there's a, there's a, there's a, there is something metaphysical that happens when you prepare material, material artistically to a certain extent. Look, musicians have these great moments of like divine intervention. And, and I think that happens to writers as well. I think it's happened to me where these, these moments, these ideas, these thoughts, these dialogues, whatever it might be, they come to you. And if you're able to capture them, whether it's you got an instrument close by and you're able to get the melody or you've got the lyric, the hook, the whatever it might be, you're able to get it down. And just enough so that that little seed is now planted. And if you could care for it, nurture it, or, just, or at least ignore it long enough uh, for it to, uh, to sprout on its own, that you might have an opportunity to nurture it into something that, 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 that almost becomes an, an, an organic living fucking creature. And, and I tell this to people that I work with when I consult with them on their films. There's a point that you get to creatively where it becomes its own thing, where it separates itself from you, the creator, and from those around it who are going to be its actors or whatever it is that, and whatever role they might play um, as a part of making it. They're separated from it. They're not it. They don't drive it. It's driving them. And I believe that to be true because I've witnessed it. You know, Don's Plum should have never fucking happened. And that's why it got taken away. It got taken away because it scared people because it shouldn't have fucking happened. You know, we, were, we weren't supposed to be able to make a film that could have that kind of emotional impact and that could have that much social commentary and that could have that much potential staying power in two days. And the only reason it happened wasn't because Artie Rob is a genius or because I'm a genius or because we were in the presence of the great prodigal fucking actor, uh, Scott Bloom. <laughs> Yeah. Right. But maybe it happened because there because we were able to nurture those relationships and nurture the work and believe in it and surrender to it completely and fully so much so that we had no care for ourselves. Right. And then from that, it, it, it took over. It became what it is today. And it, it called from us what it needed and we gave it to it willingly and voluntarily. And then maybe when it was over, we, some of us felt violated by that. But that's what I believe in. I believe in that woo-woo shit because I've witnessed it because Don's Plum shouldn't have fucking happened. I am talented. I am a good writer. When you read my book, you will fucking enjoy it. You know, of course I'm talented. I can't be a part of something and contribute to something like that without being able to hold it up. But what I did was hold it up. You're not going to believe this. I'm getting a call. Are you there? Yeah. I'm getting a call from Edie Rob. That is Artie Rob's mother. Do you want to take it? 
Do you want to hold on? Yeah. Hold on. Radio 8 Paul. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Andras? Yes. Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Okay, good. Everything is fine. Good, good, good. Everything was fine. Uh, Actually, it was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) She uh, didn't mean to call. But I'll tell you, it's a, it's not a mistake. It's an interesting thing because here I I mean, it is, right? But here we are. And she and I are estranged. We've been estranged. The last time I heard from her was while I've been fighting for freeing Don's Plum and for, you know, getting things right. She wrote me an email and it was a terrible email. And it, 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 it goes back to when, um, you know, with this whole thing between me and Toby and how Toby took my words and destroyed Don's Plum with them. And I, I totally agree with you that Don's Plum is not destroyed, but that was his intent. Um, and it was the feeling uh, overall, I think it still is the feeling amongst uh, many others that, that, that Don's Plum is a destroyed film because it just never reached its potential, but I digress. Um, the last thing she wrote me was, uh, please leave my son alone. Everything you touch turns to shit or something to that horrible effect it was devastating and this came um because uh Freegan's plum blew up uh, i had written this open letter to leonardo dicaprio got picked up by the guardian and then it, you know there was a domino effect it got picked up by all these news outlets and you know led to all these different articles and so on and so forth and so it opened up these 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 old uh these old wounds which is actually not true because i i had been hanging out with rd extensively in you know 2010 and beyond and uh, the wounds were were not closed. <laughs> they were they were wide open gushing, and they still really are ultimately because it's unfinished business. You know, our film is unfinished. But anyway, um, so it was an accident. She called, but we somehow reconnected. And during that uh, moment, you, you have a so Andras, you know, you have this thing, right? Where you have this like positive vibe, and you want things to be positive, and you want to infuse the world with this with certain positivity, even when it, it, on its face it may not seem so. Well, I've been estranged with that woman for years. Uh, and it hurts me on a, on a regular basis. She's extremely old. And I've actually recently been going through a lot of, of, of fear of losing her without ever being able to hear her voice again, because I love her dearly. And it's been something I've been dealing with because I'm a, I'm a divorcee and my former father-in-law, whom I also loved dearly, passed away. Uh, my divorce didn't go well and I was estranged from the family and uh, a lot of this, by the way, affected by by Don's Plum. She was there during the Don's Plum era, and it really, it, it's, it was really a, a, a strain on her relationship, really all the way to the end. Um, but he passed, and I, I had to I had to mourn alone, and it felt terrible. And I was going through this fear of having that with with Edie, and I also because I had heard Walt, Walt's voice again before he died years 
had passed, but you know, he was, it's a long story about why we didn't talk, but it wasn't because we didn't love each other. Um, and I never heard his voice. And so when he died, I just, I just cried so hard and mourned so, so heavy for, for just losing that. And, you know, you come into to my life, I'm in this moment where I'm like on the mount, right? You know, I'm on the fucking mount about, you know, you struck this beautiful chord about why uh, or how films, you know, can, are, are bigger than we who make them. And, and I got really passionate about that. And I don't know, man, fucking reached across. Uh, the magic works. The, the magic trick doesn't end. It really and then she shows up. Magic yeah, with crazy. a K. Yeah. Super magical moment for me just now happened in your interview. So I just, uh, it was super magical. And she just said, let's keep in touch. And I'm going to write her an email. And, uh, you know, she doesn't know this because she, here's what's going to happen. And this is, this is so perfect for me and her, right? Because, you know, yeah, Don's plum blew up and we were a little estranged after that. I mean, we, 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 we went through the lawsuit and we worked hard, but, you know, not, you know things weren't the same between me and Rob. And then, and then uh, we got back together and we, we love each other and we reconciled. And I even moved back to Los Angeles after my marriage broke up and I worked with her and Artie Rob and, and, and Station 3 and we're doing all this great stuff and we're making these cool shows and we're developing all these cool projects and we're, we're in love again and everything's great. Um, and then Hollywood and it's, it, it kind of rears its ugly head again and, 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 and things kind of get bad. So we decided to move on. And uh, we, you know, we break up and, and, you know, and then whatever, it comes like going back around. I had, a, I had a better point and I, I talked myself out of it. Well, while we're in the blast zone of that synchronicity, um, talk to me about your relationship with Artie, Rob. Artie and I met through, um, Artie and I met through, you know, Artie, Rob, it, you know, was like a creative soulmate for me. It was a, it was a, it was an immediate it was one of those immediate situations where like he trusted me creatively and I on him to, you know, to, to bring me notes and, um, and to kind of guide me as a writer, you know, and he, he's done that over the years, like through, through other projects. Uh, he's got, he's got this, 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 this great creative ability to help you through your process, whether you're a writer or a, or maybe even another director, or maybe you're an actor, you know, RD can really help you through your own process. And, and it's a wild thing. It's, it's, it's an unconsciously competent skill that he has. It's not one that, you know, he, 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 I even, I'm not even sure he's aware of it, frankly, but we have this great chemistry and um, I met him to our friends. Uh, uh, you know, Jeremy was, Jeremy's sister was sort of the catalyst or the sort of gatekeeper to all these guys and introduced me to everybody. Ardine, I auditioned for a short film that Ardine was going to direct with Leo called Last Respects. I failed miserably at it. And uh, and I had heard, well, I'll tell you an interesting story, right? So uh, uh, people who know Don's Plum or know the history of Don's Plum, they'll know about a film called Last Respects. It was a short film that was sort of the first project that we were all going to do together. And it's the one that creates the confusion around whether Don's Plum is a short and a feature, frankly. Um, uh, when, when it was uh, being filmed or whether it's, you know, the sort of the, the lore that's out there today. Um, but uh, there was this short, it was called Last Respects and I auditioned it for a role and I did so bad on draft. I don't know how many auditions you have bombed in your life. Uh, I have bombed every one of them I've ever been on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there weren't many because I realized that auditioning was just not something I was probably going to be good at without really abandoning, you know, uh, care, you know, my, I don't know, 
I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I could ever get it over. But anyway, I, I bombed on this particular audition, and this audition was actually a table read with the entire cast, which include Leo. But um, it, it was at this audition that I bombed that I overheard Leonardo DiCaprio say to to Artie Rob that he couldn't make the film Last Respects because the script was too bad. And I had been a writer my whole life, so I've been writing lyrics and poems and short stories and all kinds of shit. And uh, and I. I, I knew I blew, I'd completely blown this audition and, and I heard this problem. Leo didn't like the script. And so, uh, and, and, and I'd actually traveled to the audition with RD. RD drove me to the audition. And so I was driving with him from it. Uh, and he was obviously very disappointed because Leo said he couldn't make the film or wouldn't make the film uh, unless the script got way better. And I just offered my services, man. I said, like, I can write. Maybe I can help. And so a uh, couple of weeks after that, we kind of got together and did a little like, you know, chemistry thing. Can we pull it off or not? And we just went to the moon real quick, um, creatively. We just started bouncing ideas off. And I know I have, um, I have a, a talent for dialogue. And so I'm able to really create cool and interesting scenarios uh, and tension between characters quickly. And it, it's a like sort of a great, you know, beginning in, in, in many instances for, for collaboration and scenes and you know Artie Rob was the creative love of my life for the right you know from the time I got to Los Angeles uh until uh uh you know until Don's Palm blew up in, in all of our faces I thought that Artie Rob and I were going to be uh uh you know I thought we had the potential to be a duo that people talked about I thought we were going to be you know sort of you know a poor man's Cohen brothers, you know, he was going to write and direct and I was going to write and produce and together we were going to do those three jobs and, and, uh, and make some really funky and interesting movies that people might talk about for a while. That was already Rob, you know, I, uh, he, he, he and I, our friendship endured so much pain and, 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 um, you know, uh, I told you earlier about how, like when, when, uh, when one of the horrors of all this was waking up, that morning after the fallout um, and after Leonardo DiCaprio declared basically our, our deaths, you know, his sentence us to death. Uh, that morning I woke up and it was just so horrible to wake up and not have any friends. Like we lost 95% of our friends to the extent that they wouldn't even you know, take our calls. And that was literally the next day. I mean, it was such a strange and weird twilight zone like moment, but there was already Rob, you know, um, and and still not only uh, a friend but my best friend and and so our friendship endured that and we endured a lot more. I remember a very sad moment. We uh, were sitting at the, what, what we what we refer to as the mansion, which is now Danny Masterson's house on Holly Ridge in uh, in Franklin Village, and and that's where we cut down Plum. And it's, a, it's Chuck Berry's old mansion actually, and it was a little an old dilapidated mansion by the time we were working on it. It had this big grand balcony and on it we sat, our DNI, after all of this shit had gone down. And I was just sitting there, tears were just rolling down my cheeks. And I looked at him and I said, and I said, I'm sorry, because you know, this all started to fall apart uh around me and I was in the center of it all. And RD said, uh, uh he didn't really respond, but um I looked up at him and said, I don't know how, you know, I don't know when, but that's probably gonna have its day, and uh, and I just, that, that that day never left me. That moment never left me because it was 
you know, our, our dreams were shattered right there around our ankles. Like it was just like, we could just see the, the destruction of our lives just almost like laid out right in front of us. The sadness was just, you know, it was tangible. And, 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 and uh, just remember um, sharing that with him and, and just realizing our, you know, the, how, how deep our connection was and how much, I don't know, you know, you go through things with some people that I think um, kind of brand you, you know, friends forever. But look, in the end, uh, uh, for me, uh, um, if you know, I'm, I'm 51 years old. It's gotten to the point now in my life where I'm, I'm where, I, where, I, where I'm thinking a little bit about posterity. I'm still young enough to, you know, continue to work and grow. I'm writing like crazy. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I would say I'm 90% back to where I was creatively at the end of making Don's Plum. At, Don's, at the end of Don's Plum, I was blooming. I was ready to, I was ready to have my four, five, six film run. Um, I felt it. Uh, my ideas were were spot on. I had a, I just had a, I had a fire and an intuition and a drive that was supernatural, and I was ready to go with it. And whatever it produced, you know, and you know, a lot of people take these this this, this sort of you know this hyperbole as as some kind of you know maybe misplaced or misguided uh, confidence, but it isn't. You know, it's an artistic process, and I was doing special work at the time, and there's just no denying that. It's just living in the reality of what, what we were doing. You know. It doesn't have to be special work that everyone appreciates. I've seen plenty of films that people love that I didn't. And I've seen a lot of films that I love that plenty of people don't. So it's, 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 it always boils down to toast, uh, to, to taste and, 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 or even maybe your mood at the time. But when it comes down to the actual like function and, 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 and the work, you know, that's when, you know, we sort of separate ourselves from as people and artists. And, and there was no question where we were at that time uh, collectively and where I was individually. And I'm finally getting back to that. So I just feel like it's, a, it's been a climb back. But I think the thing I want most people to know and to, to, uh, to realize about Don's Plum is that Don's Plum is simply a film that was, that was cut together. Uh, um, you, know, you know, there's this propaganda out there about Don's Plum being you know, flipped from a short into a feature and all this nonsense. And it's degraded the image of a movie that was simply, we, we, we simply cut together the movie we shot, nothing more than that. We made the movie we set out to make and we did that without, and, and, and we, we didn't set out to make the movie with a particular set of expectations. Uh, we, we certainly wanted to make the best movie possible. That, that, was, that was the only true expectation out of any of it. We didn't have any theatrical attribution or, or you know, or uh, attributions. We didn't have any theatrical aspirations. We didn't have any, you know, you know, we 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 dreamed like everybody dreamed in Hollywood in the nineties. We'd love to be at Sundance. We'd love to be at Cannes. We'd love to be at Berlin, but um, it wasn't what drove us. What drove us was the content and the meaning of the content and the characters and the opportunity. And that was a a big part of this for us was that you know we recognized that we had we had a really special cast and you know you don't throw that opportunity away. You don't minimize that opportunity. You you have to. You know, that's a that's that's where you just I think you have to, you know, as as Nigel put it, I think it was Nigel in Spinal Tap, where you have to turn it shit up to eleven. You know, that's what you do when you're 25, and you're making movies. That's right. Our inspiration for Don's Plum and for that that whole methodology uh, approach was from Mike Lee, if you're familiar with him. Very much so. And yeah, he's he's one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, and. He was the only filmmaker that I knew of at the time that was working entirely improvisationally. 
Can I ask you a question uh, quickly? Have you seen Peter Lou yet? No. I know. I'm. It's on my list. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, go on. No. I, I was thinking about it yesterday because Happy Go Lucky is leaving uh, in September. Happy, Happy Go Lucky is leaving HBO Max. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I got to go see uh, what you call it. So anyway, but yeah, so it was, it was, it was Mike Lee um, that sort of inspired us. Um, and I wanted to take, uh, you know, sort of steps towards a more dramatic narrative. But yeah, I don't even know what the negative is. You know, we're, we, it's like uh, we're, you know, I, 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 I in, the, in these last five years, I was able to get a hold of the Berlin print, get it into PhotoCam, get that thing trans, uh, transcoded into a, a 2K. Um, um, so now I have a 2K. So I have a, a, a you know, an, um, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, a cinema file, a DCP. Mm-hmm. So I, I've got a digital cinema copy of the film now, which didn't exist beforehand. I'm able to distribute the film in HD. That wasn't able to happen before. So I'm in this like current process of, of preserving the film. And, you know, so those masters are with everything, all my Nagros and all of our, all of our assets. I don't even know what's there. Hundreds of thousands of feet of film. Hundreds of thousands of feet. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's what's going to keep, honestly, that's one of those things. That's what's going to keep it interesting. You know, you try and hide the document. It just makes it sacred. So It does. And it's weird to think because Don's Pond would have, would have been gone by now. And, and, yeah. And, 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 and been beloved, but it would have been gone. Yeah. Well, buried under the weight of the, the work that you all would do. Exactly. Yeah. Later. It's our main streets. It's our main streets. There's a, a lot of people used to freak out about that. They'd be like, oh, you think it's such a fucking masterpiece? And I'm like, no, dude, it was my first film. It just wasn't supposed to be my last one. That's all. I have carried for more than 20 years uh, the burden of, uh, of people believing that it was me who destroyed Don's Plum. And that meant that I took away the performances of Jenny Lewis and Meadow Sisto and every other cast member, Byron Timms. Um, and that's a devastating thing to carry. And, and, and so part of my mission is to, is to redeem that, even though I know that I personally didn't, uh, you know, do anything to try and interfere with or, or, inter- or interrupt their, car- their, their, their career in any other way. I feel a certain responsibility to, 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 to let people see how great they were in this movie because they're, they're stunning. They're truly stunning. Yeah, well, it's true. It is. That is the truth. I now, you know, it's funny because when you find, when it all gets worked out and everyone, everything's fine, I'll be the guy still doing a podcast saying, but you haven't seen the real version unless you've seen Tobey Maguire talk about ass play You've not seen the real version of this movie. It's part you're, of the key. Like, your your listeners are coming for it. Yeah, they're, they're coming for that. They're like, give me that version, bro. I don't want no. I don't want no Gail Wheatley Berlin cut. No, you know? I want. I want to see what they what they really really set them off. I want to see the original Zapruder film. Before the CIA got a hold of it, yeah, right, and, of course you do. Yeah, I want to see that. That's what we want to see. Anyway, anyway, that'll be so. You no, know, luckily the world will always be wrong for people like me. <laughs> You're a ton of fun, man. Uh, you know, I've done a bunch of these now, and uh, Mike White at the Projection Booth was a ton of fun. I've never listened to that interview because I suspected that they wouldn't be 
so kind to Don's Plum and I just don't subject myself to that. So I have no idea. In fact, I thought I had a bad interview, but he assured me that it was great. Oh, your interview was great. It's it's uncomfortable because you are so genuine and great and their take on it. They don't meet the film where it is. It's my that's why we do this podcast. Not be like not because there's anything wrong with that, but at, like we're right. artists and we view art from an art's sake and there's no value to be gleaned from saying oh this film isn't like isn't good on this level because they're not doing what i would do like who cares that that's a it's a it's an unimportant opinion and this i've been on the projection booth and i love the projection booth it's one of my favorite podcasts and in fact one of the reasons i started a podcast was because i wanted to be involved in those conversations so right, that I yeah. could represent this point of view as one point of view. But yeah, you came off great and they kind of came off as dicks. But I felt yeah. like they, in the end, this is why Mike's great. I feel like in the end, he saw that that's what it was. And I feel like even in their closing commentary that he made a mention of it of like, you know, I wish I had interviewed him before we talked because I would have seen the film differently. So it actually came out good. Like he did a good job, but it was frustrating yeah. to listen to as a fan, but you did come off great. So. Well, I was actually mentioning it just because, uh, and, and I would, and I would say part of the reason why I, I made, you know, may have come off uh, so well is because of, you know, the way he conducted the interview. I've had bad interviews. I've had interviews where I've begged people, please don't put them out. And, um, and, and fortunately, so far they haven't, uh, because, you know, a lot of it has to do with like, I think the world you create, I mean, you know, like that Edie Rob call is, I mean, I literally switched over from you and, uh, I, I heard her voice and the, the, her voice is a very distinct voice. She, she sounds like a dude. She's like, hello. <laughs> and I said, hello. And she's like, D who is this? And I said, this is Dale Wheatley. And she's like, oh, I didn't mean to call you. <laughs> and. <laughs> But, but upon hearing her voice, which is dear to me and so unique, um, tears just flooded my eyes. I mean, I, so there was this like, I just, I just had a surreal moment in my life. And I think that, that, that you created this, uh, this opportunity. And so what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I, I had a really great time tonight. And I think that um, that's because of, I think that's because of you. I really like, you know, the, what you bring to the table. And I do, um, and I love this. It's so great that you've come into my life in this respect because I've gone through this mental health transformation. It's been a lot of hard work, but I've emerged out of it now with this incredibly healthy perspective. So very determined and angry for what's happened to me and to my film, but very determined and, and healthy and strong. And I just, you know, I'm in a great place to receive uh the kind of vibes that you're given you know i think if you had a, if i if you'd interviewed me interviewed me a year ago you'd been like okay let's just crap that episode unless we want to change this to something more of a shitty you know <laughs> um you know so I've, I've i've it's just like i'm at this point in my life where a guy like you and the vibes that you bring um you know are not only good for 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 the film and for the messages that we have but good for me personally Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. 
Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt this show that you're probably enjoying, but I'm comedian Kevin Dombrowski, who you probably don't know. Joined weekly by my producer, Adam, a little bit more well-known than me, Hineker. Say hi, Adam. True. He's got a point. Uh, Dial it back. Each episode, I'll sit down with a very famous comedian that you probably do know, and if they're not famous, you probably know them anyway, and we'll break down what's happening in the world by making fun of all of it. This is Just Joking on the Paper House Network. No interviews, no arguments, just jokes. Now, back to your show that you were already enjoying. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. That was a long talk. That was a good talk. Thank you. That, dare I say... I think that's one of the best interviews that you've done for this show. I think that was really great. Really? Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I was kind of expecting it to be like a hate fest, but it wasn't. It was more of a bittersweet fest. It was more of a let's just get this movie seen by people fest. And like it didn't like I, it was sort of yeah. I was thinking it was going to be a lot of con- you know condemnation, but it wasn't. There's a little bit there, which is good, but. It was, it was actually more a celebration of this movie, which I think is what it needs. Because I think so much of the talk of this movie gets wrapped up in the behind the scenes, which I think doesn't do justice to the actual movie that exists. And it's nice for the people who made this movie, like like him, that that uh, you can actually get to hear about just the movie and what you think about the movie, apart from just the behind the scenes stuff. Like, it's there, but it's good just to talk about the movie, too. Well, I want to hear what you think about the movie. But before we do, I need to make one correction or just uh, I'll give one piece of information we left out of that. So the woman who plays the heavyset black woman who gets mocked mercilessly by Leonardo DiCaprio's character, that actor's name is Phyllis Brooks Daniels. Phyllis Brooks Daniels. So bravo to Ms. Phyllis Brooks Daniels uh, for that performance in the film isn't it nice that we're doing these outros later so that you have time to listen to it a million times and make these corrections (laughs) man you'd be a great grade school teacher (laughs) my family are teachers yeah correcting papers letting people know like i bet that you're the type of person that if someone says something grammatically incorrect that you correct them immediately (laughs) am i right generally you seem like that type you seem like that type of person it's (laughs) which is fine i have no problem with that type of person i also tell someone if their flies open or if they have broccoli in their food on their face yeah Yeah, that's that's i think that's what that's good that's a you it's you're helping these people out it may seem embarrassing in the moment but ultimately you're saving them from way more embarrassment you know or way more yeah way more mistakes I'll tell you, I've never regretted doing that, but there are times, there are things in my life that I still carry with me where I, I remember I was swimming with someone and her boob came out of her bathing suit and I was too embarrassed to say anything about it. And then when she found out, she was really embarrassed and I just, I still, this is like 35 years ago and I'm still <laughs> carrying it around. I'm yeah, like, you, you I have to say just something. had the guts to just say, hey, you know. Yeah. there's a polite way to do it you can like be looking away looking up and be like oh sorry you have and just kind of motion i mean i was sorry there's there's a 
there's a thing. I was like, I then, was like 16 uh, or 17 years old and it was an adult woman. So I think it was also just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Benny Hill movie. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> See, the other day there was a man at work that had his fly done. I didn't say anything because I'm the opposite. I get so scared and embarrassed to tell people these things, so I just don't. Oh, jeez. I'm just sort of like, there's a booger out your nose. I just, this is not my problem. I can't deal with this. I can't stop thinking about it, but I'm not going to be the one to point out. I'm just going to walk away. <laughs> like, I just don't want to get involved. So that's me. That's, but then I'm the that's person really, That's really what all... you want from a director. <laughs> that's what you want from your director. They're not... I'm a, I'm I'm not going to tell him that is that he looks. You know what? I guess this stuff. character has his fly down. That's just it's who the character is now. This is what's happening. Oh, you uh, need a, That's why you need a first AD, man. You need a first exactly. AD. Exactly. That's a real asshole. They, the bad guy. They're the bad guy. Yeah. Being like in that scene when you were crying, some some boogers came out. We got to do it again. The director doesn't want to tell you, but it, that's what happened. Yeah, you'll uh, be. Yeah, you're like a David Lynch type. Come over here. Get that booger out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. Send the booger wrangler. All right. We're not even in the episode. Let's go back. And now we've been waiting the whole time. Listeners have been listening. (laughs) They've been listening to me and Dale talk and just thinking, yeah, but what does Brian think of this film? (laughs) Let's. I, I really like this period of, of films. Like I really, I mean, maybe because it's when I grew up, like this, the, like I'm a kid of the 90s and that's when I fell in love with movies truly and just that whole kind of like 90s wave of indie cinema is so thrilling to me. And I think even the ones that don't work, I'm excited about. And this this movie, I feel like there's definitely some parts where the filmmaking's a little clunky, but... It's a first movie, and you can forgive that. And it's a no-budget... It's not a low-budget movie. This is a no-budget movie. And you can forgive some of the clunkier aspects of filmmaking because these are people learning how to make a movie. And it's the, it's the best kind of thing of... You wanted to make a movie, you, you're, you're limited, and it doesn't matter. You go and you make it anyways, no matter what. You don't worry so much that it doesn't sound perfect or look perfect. It's like you can't compare movies like this to you know, the big budget Hollywood movies, it's its own thing. And this movie fits in with that. And it's sad that it hasn't been part of the conversation with the clerks, with the reservoir dogs, with the sex lies and videotape with even more lower budgeted movies than that. And like just all that chameleon, Street. chameleon street. That's another one. Just like those, that era, that kind of like when Sundance meant something <laughs> and actually stood up for the little guy, this movie fits fits in that so well and i'm really glad that you're that you and me are telling people about it i feel like it fits into that world it is that world and it's just it's the acting is fantastic like yeah the i mean it the fact that they made this movie in three days is kind of incredible because it yes it definitely has it improvisation feel to it and it definitely has that kind of takes place in one night feel but the performances especially from i mean from everybody really i don't even want to just say just leo because everybody is very genuine and very good and it was great in interview to hear that this isn't just them being their young wise ass selves it's them actually acting 
showing that these are truly talented people. And this is them at the very beginning, which is really fun to kind of see these people that we now know who are great actors and have continued to be great. Like kind of at the beginning, they already kind of had that thing, that it thing. And, uh, and it is sad that Jenny Lewis wasn't in more things as an actress, like beyond this, you know, and the stuff she did as a little kid. Cause she's really good. Like that was kind of my takeaway is that yeah. she's fantastic. And like, I'm glad that she's given us this world of music, which is clearly her passion. But man, like it would, it, it's fascinating to think like, what would movies have been like if she kept doing them? Like, would she be on, on the same level as like a Maggie, Maggie Gyllenhaal or, um, you know, just like, just the, those people that kind of made these fun indie movies. Christina and Ricci. Became, Christina yeah, Ricci, I, I for sure. A yeah. A career like that. Yeah. Her. Where you're yeah. just, you're kept taking chances and kept pushing yourself to be in these kind of challenging small movies. She could maybe... be the next Sinatra. She could have been the next Sinatra coming out with <laughs> a film and an album every year from Jenny Lewis. <laughs> She's still young. She could come back to acting. If, well, you know, know what? <laughs> wouldn't it? Hey, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing if Don's Plum got rediscovered and other people started having this conversation? That Can like, you see somebody making like a small movie now? And she's the star and everyone's like, oh, shit, this is amazing. Like, she's so good in it. And well, you're like, yeah, like, she's been great. She was great 25 years ago in this other movie. Um, yeah. Well, you know, my, my goal, as, as I was talking with Dale, I realized he certainly has his point of view. And I'm obviously very sympathetic to it for the most part. And at the same time... While he can sort of say, oh, yeah, they weren't the pussy posse and that's not really who they are. I'd love to hear the point of view of s some of the women who were on the set, just their take on what it was like. I'd Jenny Lewis is at yeah. the top of the list of the people I would love to talk to about this film. And I actually have this idea as I was talking with Dale about reaching out to once this podcast is out sending it to other people who are in the film and or involved in the film in one way or another and asking them if they would be willing to talk about it. And those can be bonus episodes. I've already spoken with Jerry Metters, who we spoke about on the in the interview with Dale, and he's already mm -hmm. agreed to talk with me. So I'm definitely going to record that conversation. But I'd love to hear what Jenny Lewis has to say about this film. I'd love to hear yeah. what Bethany Ashton Wolf, who was one of the writers on the film, and she played the Hollywood executive who comes on to Kevin Connolly. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk with uh, Blake Sennett, who did the music, and get his take. Toledo Diamond is someone who I've, I've been thinking it'd be interesting to reach out to to get his take on this. Byron Thames would be great to talk to. Oh, and I hadn't even noticed that uh, an old, very good friend of mine who was a, a, a roommate... A woman named Christina Karras worked on the in the costume department, maybe was huh. the head of the costume department on this film, and I would I'm definitely going to be reaching out to her. So I just think it'd be great to build yeah. this oral history of the film and have it happen in this in this positive way because I do feel like there's some pall or some fear about discussing this film, but at this point in the lives of these people, I think it's time. turn it positive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And and that's what I liked about the interview. Like all this kind of kind of turned back into 
oh, when me and my friends were young and we made this crazy movie. Like, that's how this movie should be thought of, not as this weird, shelved, hidden, sad secret that we should be scared of. It should be something that's like we should open up and look at and go, what is this? And, and I think uh, I really want to hear from Amber Benson, what because like her whole just, you know, that big scene of her leaving and throwing her sandal and and like just being like kind of at the end of all those horrible insults in a movie and stuff. Like, what is that like being at a table where everyone is just hating on you? Boy, um, yeah, I bet that's I bet that's an interesting perspective that she has. And I've always really liked her. I've been a fan of hers since. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, yeah, I um, feel bad about not remembering her name during the interview. So, apologies <laughs> to Amber Benson. Uh, yeah, that scene is. Uh, we I, I use that scene as the the clip for the yeah. that starts off the show and the moment when she breaks when the when the girls turn on her and that's the moment when she breaks and it just crushes me every time because she's sitting there and it's like all the guys are picking on her. And she's going toe to toe. But when the girls turn on her, that's when she screams. And just that I just know that feeling of feeling like, okay, at least someone has my back. And then the people you think are going to have your back don't. And what a moment. What a great what a great moment. And just on the off chance. That the two the two people who sort of got set up for the most criticism in this podcast the two most famous actors from the film, uh, Tobey Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio, happen to be listening to this or people who are, <laughs> are loyal to them are listening to this. All I want to say is that during this, uh, I had the opportunity. It just came up synchronistically. I was hanging out with my girlfriend and the Great Gatsby, the Baz Luhrmann Great Gatsby came on and I had them in my head and I watched that film and they're fucking great in it. And that that is a great I don't care what it. That's a really great Gatsby interpretation. I haven't watched it. I want to see. I want to see that real bad. It's really, really good, and it made me just think. God damn, Tobey Maguire is a. I. I really. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything that I didn't like him in. I really. He. I. I. I just. I'm a big, big fan of his as an actor. I'm not obviously a big fan of whatever happened the one night that made it so that we're still talking about the controversy around this film, but I also don't care. I don't hold any of that against him as an artist. I really, I have a deep, deep affinity for him as an actor. And obviously Leonardo DiCaprio is, yeah, uh, must, if he does something, he's, he's on a run of greatness right now that, uh, you know, we're just all looking forward to whatever the next thing he does, whenever the next thing he does is, uh, comes out. So, uh, but yeah, great Gatsby. Great. It's a, it's a, I, I hope those two guys make more movies together and I hope people see this film because they're great in it. Yeah. And let's hope that maybe a actual legit Blu-ray can come out of this movie in this country someday with like a commentary and yeah making of and like a way for people to actually see it because who cares by this point it's so long ago yeah just have the movie come out like it's like you're all old now like just let it be (laughs) yeah well i hope so i hope we're i hope we're opening up the space where this film can finally just have its moment and i hope that dale's book that he finishes his book and that it is that it, it tells a story that he needs to tell 
And whatever it is, I hope it just like, let's just have a conversation about this, people. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. I, I don't want to say it's a great movie because it's not. It's just it's an important movie. It's an important movie. It's a it's an it's a first film that is so full of talent. Um, you know, it's like those early, early Brian De Palma films. They're not great, or the and any like they're not great. But you know, it's De Palma working with Robert De Niro in a yeah. in a spotty movie. You got to watch it. <laughs> I no, that's a great comparison. I totally agree. Yeah, you know. Uh, what's that? Like what's the, what's it? Oh. the wedding party? The <laughs> wedding party, not good, but important because it's young, young De Niro, yeah, De Palma. It's just them kind of pretending to be Godard, but it's great because of seeing where it started, where it, where it went. Yeah, yeah. So I hope I I hope this is not the last time we're discussing this film. I think this is one of the films that we're gonna throw our arms around a little bit tighter like a mad dog time yeah definitely in that pile yeah yeah i guess one other thing it just should i I, when i listen to it there's definitely a sense and i this i probably already hinted at this by saying i would love to hear from, from some of the women who were on the set but i was definitely aware listening to my conversation that there were some times when women were referred to as chicks or things like that that i that there's a part of me that as a listener, I'm like, okay, two guys talking about a pussy posse and using words like that could be really alienating. If you felt that way, I would love to hear your point of view. You, you can write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. If you didn't feel that way and you want to encourage like, but I, I, I do feel like I want to open up a channel that we know that there are, there are points of view that might see all of this differently. And I'm definitely aware of it. And we want to invite that. Like I said, it's all, it's all a conversation. So uh, I, 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 I can certainly see that peop- some people might want to join that conversation. And you can by writing to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. You can find all of our episodes at www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can find us on our two social media platforms at The World Is Wrong Podcast on Instagram, where Brian is slamming and gramming with the best of them. <laughs> and I am handling the Twitter account at World Is Wrong Pod. So that's where you can find us on the, 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 the Twit land. And you can also find Brian hosting the Director's Wall podcast every, you know, other month an episode comes out. Uh, no, some, pretty much every one, month. Sorry. It's 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 Brian with our good friend AJ Gonzalez talking currently about the films of Francis Ford Coppola with also occasional dips back into the land of M. Night Shyamalan when he has a new film out. And of course, I have Radio 8 Ball. Uh, the Radio 8 Ball Show, which you hear the, the the bumpers for on this, and so I'm not going to explain it other than to say it's fabulous and you should check it out. And coming up next week, what do we have, Brian? It's a film you picked. You should probably remember. Ravenous! Yeah! Ravenous. A great movie. I'm very excited to share this movie with people. It is very, very, very funny, very... Very gory and just perfect for Wrongtober. A perfect pick. 
probably the theme. most uh, the most truly horror genre film in our exploration yeah. of horror films that people don't think of as horror films. Yeah, but there are other sure. ways. There are plenty of other ways the world is wrong about that. This, this yeah. film, it's a fantastic. Yeah, picture. We, we talk about the director. We we go into this movie, so I'm excited for you all to hear it. Yes. Fans of snowbound horror, get ready. If you like The Shining, you're going to... It's not anything like The Shining. There's snow. Okay, so, well, I guess that's it. Thanks a lot to our our guest, Dale Wheatley, for being a part of this. And thank you for listening and you know just sharing this love of movies with us. I feel like it's kind of a little support group, and we need this. We need this because... <laughs> I mean, it's tough. This is true for everyone. But once you know the truth of it, it, I don't know if it makes it any easier once you realize that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it happens to be wrong about you. <laughs> I think everybody should get for Kurt. I do too. I know, but that's uh, just I, like blatant. I'm sorry, I'm right Hypocrisy. Huh? What? I get on your case a little much about being gay. I just think you should get it a Wait. little more out in the open. What do you say we uh, switch up to I mean, you're old... not, he's not gay. He's just a fucking bisexual. Switch right up on. to the old, the old fuck you game. <laughs> Wait, this fuck. is kind of... Wait. Nice. Okay, I'm sorry. He wants to dance. Wants to dance. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Being a fucking neo-fascist Aryan bastard <laughs> who wants everyone to be exactly like him and doesn't understand a thing I fucking do and this moment is a fucking earthling on the planet... <laughs> And I can suck cock, or have my cock sucked by anybody. And uh, you're a fucking two-year-old. Oh! Okay, looks like we're playing a new game, huh? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you for that. smoking those ugly brown cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you for inviting me out on a date and not telling me that you're bisexual. Ooh! Is it really bi? Well, I don't know. I think it's more acceptable for two girls, on. maybe. have a problem with the fact that you don't talk about it at all, bro. You know what, bro? Fuck you for confronting him. Fuck yeah. you for being a cock tonight in general. Fuck you for fucking with this girl. Fuck you, bro, for being uh, a poor guy who wears the same fucking shirt every week. Uh, see, wait, no, no, wait, wait, no, seriously. Wait a second. No, wait a second. Let him, wait a second. shit right him, here. Wait a when it doesn't make you as healthy as any of us, bro. Bro, you know what you're Fuck doing? You, for you know still... what you're doing, bro? You're fucking being way shallow. You're, bro. you're talking about my fucking my bro. medicine, and you're you're making people cry and run out of restaurants, and it's like okay you're with that. I'm sick of fucking picture, the nice man. guy routine, bro. Yeah, but you're being an you, asshole. When I first met you, you were an asshole just like me, and all of a sudden you're the fucking vegetarian so spiritual master. So maybe I've maybe I've grown. 
It's nothing to do with growing, bro. Well, I think you're fucking being fake. Dude, two, second, two, two seconds ago, man. Two seconds ago, you were talking about you feeling like a cop for doing that to him, and then you fucking jumped down his exactly. throat. No, I, I just don't, don't like, you know, I have, a, I have a problem. I think we should all confront shit, and that's what, you know, yeah, stand together is about. Did you, you out know what him I mean? in front of three girls that he doesn't know? Exactly. exactly. Girls, I'm talking about my friends. I But there's a way of confronting someone diplomatically, you know? And you know that, dude. You know that. You take it that up at the end of the night, bro. Fuck you for having that voice, bro. <laughs> I like his voice. Stupid New York voice of like a fucking mook on the street fuck buying a hot dog. stifling my friend, man, because he's because he talks different. Fuck you for being a 30-year-old fucking gay fag. I'm just as old as you, man. You just haven't matured. With crystal blue eyes, who probably has a vibrator at home and reads fucking Playgirl. Fuck you for insulting vibrators. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.